events of last weekend, our World Superbike Champion has decided to keep his opinions to himself and move on. Here at Motorsport 101, we're going to do the exact opposite of that. Welcome to Bike Live. Yes, welcome to episode 10 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on a dramatic weekend of Superbikes at Aston as the World Superbike Championship battle got heated between Jonathan Ray and Chas Davies, even though the battle on the track may well have been settled already. Uh, we'll talk about Jonathan Ray's sensational double as he moved into double figures of Assen World Superbike victories, although it didn't seem to please everybody. We'll also talk about all of the other stories from that weekend, including that Super Pole spat, which is still rumbling on four and five days later. We'll talk about Tom Sanks overcoming illness to finish second in two races, and finally getting back on pole position for the first time this season. We'll also talk about all the other big stories as Michael Vandermark's home round didn't quite go to plan, although he did salvage it on the Sunday. We'll also talk about World Super Sport as it transferred its batshit crazy tendencies to the 300 class this time. And we'll also look at the British Superbike action from Alton Park and that crash between Leon Haslam and James Ellison. We'll also talk about all the big MotoGP news as a former World Superbike champion makes his return to Grand Prix. And we'll look ahead to this weekend as the European season gets underway at the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez. Um, Rebecca James isn't with us this week, unfortunately. She has to work um, in her absence. Um, it's Andre Harrison joining myself, Lewis Sudderby, for this week. Welcome along, Dre. Boo, it's boo. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We will get Bex back eventually. In the meantime, yes, once again, you are stuck with me. Um, you must be getting real sick of my voice by now, listeners. I'm really <laughs> sorry for that. But um, yes, I am back officially as the Motorsport 101 fighting correspondent. Mm -hmm. So there was o there was only one person suitable for this sort of role this week. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, we better we better get along here, Dre. Over the course of the next two hours, I'm going to write a very uh, sternly written column about you uh, later <laughs> on this week. Uh, Fifteen hundred words and all. Um, it be the first time. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're referring to the column written by Chaz Davies there. Um, while you read that, because it might take you a while, um, let's tell you about all different ways you can get in touch with us uh, here at Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. We are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, we are on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. We are on YouTube as well, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Keep an eye on that in the coming weeks for Date of Champions 2. Uh, that's just three weeks away. Um, we will also uh, be on, well, we're also on the internet. You can also find us on our website, motorsport101.net, where all of that information is kept. If you like us so much that you want to back us financially, you can, of course, do that by heading to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Your support earns you many, many cool perks, including early access to Bike Live and Motorsport 101. Episode 84 went live this week. My sandbag is bigger than yours. That sandbag belonging to the Mercedes team and Valtteri Bottas, Dre. Yes, it was. Yeah, we um again, like I apologise for the slightly crude episode title. Shout out to Owen Harmon um, from our Discord server for, for coming up with that one. It was a fun game of oh wait, Merckx will actually still sandbagging. Oh wait, Ferrari still got pole anyway. Great. Um, <laughs> and obviously that meaning the square root of precisely jack shit by the time we got mm -hmm. to five hundred yards past turn one. But somehow we managed to cram two hours of podcast out. Regarding uh, Sochi, uh, as well as the IndyCar Grand Prix of Phoenix, 
Sauber switching to Honda engines and a whole lot more. Um, so check that out as well. And there's a Keeping It 101 segment in there with Helen the Hicks in there as well. It, it's uh, we, we did a good bodge job on that one. It was really good. Um, <laughs> but um, that and a lot more on episode 84 of Motorsport are available now on SoundCloud and where all good podcasts are available. <laughs> yes, episode 85 coming up next week. Now let's go on to World Superbikes then and talk about the action from Assen um, last weekend. And... Um, we, know, we often talk about, Dre, the events of Saturday, given that race one is now on a Saturday, so it gives us something to talk about on both days. But it kind of says a lot about this race weekend, um, Dre, that the big talking point, even now, took place in that 15-minute Super Bowl two session between Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davies. Um, let's get the first piece of news out of the way that will be completely forgotten in all of this. Jonathan Ray set a pole time that was quicker than the MotoGP race lap record around that place. <laughs> which is absolutely incredible. He went quicker than Mark Marquez's lap record, um, and he was within a second of Valentino Rossi's pole lap, the fastest ever lap on a motorcycle around Assen. Um, so a moment to be impressed about that um, mm. from, from Jonathan Ray. Um, but whilst Jonathan Ray was busy um, basking in the glow of his sensational pole lap, the shit hit the fans spectacularly. Yes, um, as as Ray was celebrating a fantastic pole position, one Chaz Davis, who had already parked his bike in Park Femi and was talking to, his, to, to the um, Ducati um, pit crew in a rather disgruntled fashion, was waiting for Jonathan's arrival, yeah. and um, there was a there was a firm handshake, and then Chaz Davis gave him both barrels live on Eurosport for the world to hear. And you know what I love about that segment was that Matt Roberts was trying to say, "Oh, let's see if we can get it here of this," and then realised Chaz was levering it for the square. Yeah, was calling was him like, a prick. No. It's like, no, no, we we, we can't listen to this. <laughs> Apologies for the French there. Um, <laughs> bless him, Matt Roberts, ever the professional there, realised he made a terrible mistake on this occasion by, by listening to a very angry Welshman. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest of uh, calls made by Matt there. Although, um, yeah, I guess if you're of the opinion that any sort of swear words is, is frowned upon, then, yeah, I can understand you being a bit offended by that. I found it hilarious, frankly. Um, Me too. Between, between Jonathan Ray. Uh, if, you're if you're listening to this show, you probably don't mind a bit of foul language. Um, so, oh, right. um, so yeah. Um, before we come on to the actual spat between the two and, and the subsequent uh, sort of online spat that we've had, where they've both written online columns about it, oh, um, yeah. the actual incident itself, Jonathan Ray has taken pole position and then is cruising around on his slowdown lap. And... Around the left-hander, I forget the name of the corner, but it's it's sort of halfway around the lap. Jonathan Ray's cruising around, and Ch- Chas Davies very nearly rides up the back of him um, because Chas Davies hadn't taken the checkered flag. Um, this is a, a, a crucial point in all this. Chas Davies was on a live lap, um, mm-hmm. and the new Super Bowl tyres are designed to do more than one time lap. So Chas Davies was putting that theory to the test. Of course. Um, he wasn't on a personal best, but he was only a tenth off, so he was still in play. Um, sure. to make an improvement on his current third-placed uh, grid time um, when he came across Jonathan Ray cruising. Um, now, as I say, Dre, we'll come on to the spat itself in a bit, but looking at the incident itself in isolation, um, does Chance Davis have every right to be a little bit annoyed by that? Yes. Um like, again, I don't want to quote Chaz Davis's um, <laughs> historically long column here too much, but he did look into the numbers, and yeah, Jonathan Ray banged to rights was too slow. He, we, I mean, again, the, the definition of, of cruising in the um, Dorna playbook is within 10% of your best race time. Jonathan was about 20% out, so that, there's no doubt Jonathan Ray was going too slowly. Mm, like, and it's not just that he was going too slowly, but he was right in the way as well. He wasn't even off the line. 
Yeah, exactly. He was in the way. I mean, again, I don't think anyone's going to kill Jonathan if he's going slowly, if he's not directly involved in another rider's lap. Yeah. But in um, but in any case, he got this one badly wrong. There's there's no doubt about it. He was on the racing line as Chaz was coming through. Um, yeah, Jonathan's not got much of he's not got much grounds for argument here. He was definitely in the wrong. Um, and I think the punishment of a free place grid penalty, which is, uh, ended up being from race direction later on, mm. yeah, that was a fair penalty. Um, yeah, so I don't have any problem with the officiating itself. I think that was absolutely fine. I think Jonathan was responsible for what happened. And yeah, I think the correct penalty was given. Yeah, I have to say, as soon as I saw the replay of that, it just, I, I thought it was a slam dunk, as they say. It just looked yes. like a grid penalty. I just thought, watching that replay, and this wasn't just because Tom Sykes was in line to inherit his first pole of the year. Um, but just watching that, I thought that's going to take some defending. Like I'm, I'm struggling to construct a defense for that, um, for Jonathan Ray when he goes to his direction. I mean, I'm struggling to see how he's going to be able to explain that one away um, because Chaz Davies had to jump off the throttle and basically get out of his way um, as he as he went around the outside of him and then um, basically twatted him on the arm as he rode past um, to to just. To sort of gesture his his displeasure about it all. Um, it kind of was given Jonathan was looking the other way as that happened. Yeah, he kind of said it already, didn't it? Yeah, it kind of yeah, it kind of said all oh, Jonathan Ray. Well, this is the thing. Jonathan Ray seems to be completely unaware of where Chaz was because he was looking the other way. Um, but Chaz Davies disputes this. Um, now. Um, Talk among yourselves, listeners, for a moment, because this may take a while, um, because the two have both taken to um, the internet since then um, to try and put, sort of put their side of the arguments across. Uh, now, Jonathan Ray has a weekly column in, in MCN, um, or a column following each World Superbike round um, mm-hmm. that he puts up on the website. Um, speaking about it, um, he talks about Super Bowl and says he put one hell of a lap together, which he unquestionably did. Uh, possibly one of the cleanest of my career for pole position. Unfortunately, it will be what happened next that was the talking point of the weekend. I rolled out of my second lap and was checking around for traffic when at turn 7, I got in the way of Chaz completely unintentionally. What happened next was ridiculous. After being punched on the track, I got back to part firm, mate, left things a little and offered some words to Chaz. He went off on one, swearing and all sorts as I tried to remain calm. All I wanted to do was smooth things over, as he is a guy that I respect, but even after his little dummy spat, I offered him an apology in my hand, which he rejected. Chaz rejected that incidentally because he felt that Jonathan Ray had taken too long to do so and that he should have already have realised his error. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Ray went on to say, after I got asked to go to race direction and checked all the footage with them and agreed that I got in his way, it was clear to see that I was a long way off my line, but he uses a pretty wide line in that corner. I got a three-place grip penalty, which meant I started fourth. What upset me most over the whole thing was Chaz tried to make out that tried to make out that I was a bad sport, like I'd done it on purpose. I could go on and on about it, but I prefer to keep my opinions about Chaz to myself and hold my head high. Let's move on. Chaz decided not to move on, um, because here's what happened uh, on Facebook. Uh, late last night, as we record this, Wednesday, May the 3rd, um, last night, uh, Chaz said the following. I'm not going to read the full statement, because we've only got a two-hour show, um, yep. but I've highlighted the important stuff here. Um Chaz says, firstly, I hold my hands up and apologise for my choice of language. I'm sorry it came across on live TV and to whoever it may have offended. In the heat of the moment, I went hashtag no filter. I realise those guys are role models for young kids and that was no example to follow. Whilst I'm sorry for my choice of language, I'm not sorry for addressing the issue in the way I did. I don't need to detail that this sport is dangerous and there isn't much more dangerous than a rider touring on the racing line. Add a touring rider into the path of other riders during the last lap of Super Bowl and it's another level of shit's about to get real. Sorry, there I go again with the potty mouth. I've added some context for you below, so the facts are there for all to see. Now, up to now, Dre, I don't think we can really argue with anything that Chaz is saying. 
Um, right. I think he's absolutely right in all of that. Now, he goes into great detail here um, about the the timings of all of this. He says, I crossed the line at the end of my first flying lap, 19 seconds after 65. 65, for you, all of you who are wondering, for the remainder of this statement, 65 is Jonathan Ray's regular race number before he changed to number one. Um, so 65 refers to Jonathan Ray and all of this. 19 seconds is quite a large gap. For example, a full of full lap of cruising is on average about 15 seconds slower than an on-pace lap. So for me to catch the full 19 seconds in less than half a lap is quite exceptional. Add to that the fact that 65 slowest pit in lap of the entire weekend was 18 seconds slower than a full-on pace lap. It was a 154. Yet at the end of Super Bowl 2, somehow he managed to lose 19 seconds in the opening 40 seconds of a full lap in Moto3. The percentage determined to be cruising is 10% of your full fastest lap. Applying Moto3 rules, losing just about 4 seconds would have been enough for him to incur a grid penalty. I wonder what penalty would have been handed down for 19 seconds. As it turned out, it was 3 places. Um, my second lap was underway and at the second intermediate split, I was 51 thousandths of a second outside of my personal best lap. So he would definitely have called himself in touch with his own time. I saw 65 as I exited turn 5 onto the back straight. That's to Strubben, the tight left-hander. And he took a long look, look over his shoulder through turn 6. And with what I expected him to move well aside on what is the seriously fast part of the circuit. As I threw my bike into turn 7, 65 was mid-corner, just wide of the ideal racing line. And I'm talking a bike's width and no more. In that situation, you don't know what the rider ahead is thinking or which way he's going. As he hasn't clearly shown which part of the track he's heading for. He stayed on that line, which then on corner exit turns into what is exactly the ideal line where the natural line is to drift out to three-quarters of the track width. Um, he, he refers to the fact that it could have been a massive accident. 65 again looked behind the opposite side to where I was, and I felt the need to wake him up to the severity of what just happened. I hit him on the arm as I passed and hurtled some gestures his way. Now, fast forward a couple of minutes into part of A, and once I saw him make the Italian gesture uh, of a pinch-together thumb and fingers, this is Chas to Johnny, uh, translating what the hell were you thinking, I expected a different reaction to what came. 65 went straight on the defensive saying he hadn't seen me, claiming he was offline anyway. Why was I on the outside of him? I shouldn't have been anywhere near him. It was a good attempt at turning the situation around to put the blame on me. There was everything but a simple apology, which had it have arrived straight away, would have instantly diffused the situation. Uh, I threw the regrettable profanities at him, and finally, after heated exchanges, he begrudgingly offered his hand as an apology. As far as I was concerned, it was too late, and I didn't feel like it was genuine, so I declined. That's in reference to Johnny's point. Um, of the handshake being refused. He was happy to tell the media that I, it was good to see me frustrated. If you get your kicks for putting other riders' lives in danger, good for you. My reaction was genuinely not informed by any kind of frustration other than that at what I perceived was dirty riding. Um, now, later into the piece, Chaz says, Mistakes happen. I've unintentionally held others up before and I've always held my hands up to those kind of mistakes. Um, however, with the facts that are in front of me, I'm absolutely certain there were no coincidences on, coincidences on this occasion. On track, it's usually clear what is or isn't intentional. Um, he goes on to say, a number of riders messaged me on Saturday to say that they have, at various points in the past, had the same issues. If 65 sees you as a threat, he's willing to play those cards. So to 65, you're a good enough rider without these games, so cut the crap and let's continue to put on the show that is entertaining fans of Superbike. Mano a mano, I enjoy the battles, the intense rivalry, and hugely respect your ability and achievements, but I strongly believe on this occasion you just took it way too far. Um, now, that is a more concise version of what he said. Believe me, it's a lot longer than that um, that, uh, that I've just read out to you. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you've got a few hours to spare, head to Chaz Davis's Facebook right now and read the full thing. 
Um, I've basically tried to pick the juicy parts out of that. Um, if we can condense that Dre into one short sentence, um, and, and this for me is a pretty dangerous sort of um, theme to take from this, Chas Davies is absolutely convinced, and he's in no um, doubt at all, that Johnny Ray did this on purpose. There's no question. Like the the way he's insinuated it, and like the key flashpoints from each of from from that even the shorter version of of, of your speech. It, it's I read the whole thing when I got in from work today. Yeah, and I read it with my mouth open. I just could not believe what I was reading. Yeah, it's like he's taken every little thing that has happened in that incident, and he's gone for the most cynical possible outcome regarding any possible scenario of Jonathan Ray in it, from the handshake to the to the gesticulations in the pit lane, to him looking the other way, to the handshake, to the actions themselves. Like, like, like Chaz, you're in the right here. You do realise this, right? Yeah, we, like, we all agree with you. you. We agree with you. Like, Jonathan was in the wrong. Like, he, like absolutely. But whether it was by accident or, by, or on purpose is up to you. But there's no doubt that he was caught bang to rights and Jonathan was rightly punished. And, again, I, I think the punishment would fit the crime too. So... I don't know what Chaz get, gets or gains from being so cynical to the point where he's making some very serious allegations about Jonathan Ray here. I mean, like, this this is some serious stuff. Like, he's he's in, question, like, questioning his integrity here, isn't he? Yeah, is that, you're, you're questioning the man's integrity as a rider and as a human being when you're saying, oh, he... He, he's willing to play these sort of tricks. Like, what are you implying? Are you implying that he might take you off the road if, you, if he thinks you're a danger to him? That is a very serious allegation. And if I still say to this day, say, Valentino Rossi got off light when he said some of these things about Mark Marquez a couple of years ago after Sepang, and obviously Sepang, Philip Island, and that ongoing saga towards the end of last season where basically Rossi got a tinfoil hat out um, regarding Marquez not going 100% every single lap for a, with a hot tyre on the front. Um, yeah, it's the same deal here. And, like, like I can't see where Chaz is coming from on this. Like, again, maybe Chaz knows something I don't. Maybe he, he is genuine about some of the text messages that supposedly he's been sent from quote-unquote other riders. But I just don't get it. Like, I, I just don't get why Chaz has taken this angle. Like, he does I don't know what he stands to gain from being so cynical towards Jonathan here. Like, I just, it, 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 it boggles my mind. It doesn't quite add up to me. It's like, this is a very, it's a very hard line stance to take for something that ultimately wasn't serious and ultimately didn't have an effect on the weekend, really. Exactly. Yeah, because Chaz's Chaz such a lengthy statement like that seems to imply that Chaz is looking to set the record straight, if you like, and try and correct some inaccuracies. But... I don't think anyone was, as you say, I don't think anyone was questioning what we'd seen on Saturday. We all we all knew that Jonathan Ray had messed up and got in his way. And that was pretty much the long and short of it. So I don't think, I don't think Chaz has really told us anything we didn't know already in 1,500 words here. Um, other than his, his, I want to call it paranoid sort of observations of Jonathan Ray. I mean, we were asking this question ourselves before we recorded this. I'll ask it again on air. Have you seen anything in Jonathan Ray's career to this point I know we haven't exactly followed every second of it right from Junior Formula, but have you seen anything in Jonathan Ray's career to suggest he's a dirty rider? Short answer, no. Long answer, I don't know what he's talking about. Like Jonathan Ray, at least in my opinion, has always been a class act on and off the bike. 
He's, I've never had a bad word to say about him as a rider or as a human being. And I think there have been other riders in World Superbikes in, in the last few years that have been more aggressive than he has, i.e., for one, his own teammates, he can make the arguments of, and we all know him. We've all known that he's gotten into some bitter spats with teammates in the past as well. So, like, it's like Jonathan is like far from the worst defender in World Superbikes for potentially controversial stuff. Even if you think Tom Sykes may or may not have been in the right regarding team orders, you know, for for instance, you know, that's controversy, and that was a mm. season title finale, and that got everybody talking for better or worse. So, Jonathan is not that, that kind of guy. And remember, like, I'll give you a key example here, Sotheby. This is the man that slowed down and let his own teammate pass him on track just so he could finish second in the championship to no benefit of him. Although I do wonder whether that is part of Chaz Davies' greatness because it was Chaz that lost the runner-up spot in the championship because of that. Well... Let's be this way. If Tom Sykes took it sincerely, I don't, I don't see what, what the issue is here. Yeah. Like Jonathan, just like does that seem like a guard to you that is is out to try and hurt other riders? It doesn't no. to me. It just doesn't. No. Although, as I say, Chaz was the one that kind of lost the runner-up spot because of that. So maybe he, I don't think he particularly uh, enjoyed that. Because I remember Chaz speaking no. after that incident in Qatar last year, where where Johnny held Tom out, where Chaz said, "I could see that coming a mile off. I knew from last night they were going to do that um, on the final lap." Um, but yeah, I, I just don't see where. Um, Chaz is coming from from all of this. It, I just I, I, can't, I cannot see from anything on Jonathan Ray's Jonathan Ray's career. I just cannot see a single incident. I'm trying to wrap my brains as I'm speaking to try and think of any incident in the in the past, even when Johnny was back at Honda, um, for anything oh. that he did um, to try and I don't know mess another rider up, mess a teammate up. I just can't think of one. Um, I've, got, I've got nothing. Remember, it's, it's it's easy to forget that Jonathan Ray has not been a prolific contender no. in Worlds until 2015. Like, no. like, so even if he'd had done something controversial, it wasn't to the point where the entire sport or motorsport landscape is talking about it. No. At least it's not from my memory. No, and just from just doing the quick maths in my head, because the championship standings as they are at the moment, Jonathan Ray leads Chaz Davies by 84 points. He gained, I mean, he gained 34, didn't he, over the course of the weekend. So he started the weekend 60 points ahead of Chaz Davies. Um, what would Jonathan Ray have had to gain from messing Chaz up in Super Bowl? He's, Chaz is 60 points behind him at that point. Nothing. And, and like I said, it, when for me, the fact that Jonathan was looking the other way when Chaz Davis rolled past him seemed to give me the impression that Jonathan was just genuinely unaware that Chaz yeah, was coming. Yeah, daydreaming. Yeah, like, again, I think Chad, I think Jonathan was in his own little world there. I think you know he thought he was happy with his lap, and he probably just didn't realise that Chas was on a hot one coming around him, and he was you know quite a way away. And just the fact he was looking the other way, maybe think he just didn't see him until the last minute. And you know, again, you know, luckily that was the end of it. It was nothing too serious in in, in terms of actual on track liability. Um, yeah, Jonathan got it wrong on this one, but mm. I, I, I like to, I'd like to think I'd give him the benefit of the doubt and say it was a genuine accident because I can't see anything there to suggest that he did it on purpose. And I am always of the ilk of innocent until proven guilty. That's yeah. just how I am as a human being. So for me, I don't see anything to suggest Jonathan's done anything, you know, truly cynical to go out of his way to harm Chaz Davis's. Uh, let's be honest here. 
like distance odds of winning the championship like Jonathan had nothing to gain really from doing that he had already set in his own yeah. eyes the best lap of his career and so, uh, and in qualifying Jonathan Ray was a second ahead of Chas Davis says nearest makes no difference in qualifying times so the Karasakis were a mile ahead of the rest of them um in qualifying so it wasn't like the Ducati was much of a threat although he proved to be a threat uh, in race one um yeah I just don't see it and and, and the other thing I'd say here Dre and by all means tell me whether or not you agree or disagree with this but Chaz Davis is almost basically trying to tell us that Jonathan Ray was going out to try and rattle him um, but from what I just I get from this statement is whether Johnny meant to or not he certainly has rattled him he has like the, like if you want to be truly cynical, then yeah, you can make the argument Jonathan Ray has the, the damage has been done, quite frankly. And whether he meant you know, to or not, yeah, why not? He, like, he's the world champion. He's had everybody else be chasing him down from the start of this season. Like he's been the target. He's been the man to beat, and it's been up to everybody else tripping up over each other, you know, trying to get in Jonathan Ray's way, but it hasn't worked. The man's the man's won seven out of the eight races so far this season and finished a close second in the other one. Mm. And so, you know, Ray is practically unbeatable at this point. And Davis has made multiple critical mistakes like he usually has, you know, in in, in World Team by races of past. Again, it's, it's a it's a it's a sadly it's a common Chaz Davis criticism is that in big moments, he has made critical mistakes, as has Melandry, as has Tom Sykes, and, no, and nobody else is on competitive machinery right now. So, as it stands, yeah, Jonathan has rattled them, and Chaz going off on one, to be honest with you, sounds like the act of a beaten man. Hmm. Yeah, it does. And I'll ask this I remember asking this question when we discussed the Rossi Marquez Sepang clash on Bike Live, but back at the end of 2015, when I remember asking at the time, what is this good for the sport in that case, MotoGP? And there were there were arguments on both sides of it as to whether that was actually good for MotoGP. Um, what about this one? I mean, MCN actually listed a few other incidents where WSB riders have seen red, as they put it, and they do mention Sykes and Baz in 2014, um, oh. where where Baz knocked Sykes off in Malaysia and then refused to assist him uh, in the closing rounds of the season. They also reference Bad Biaggi and Malandria, Biaggi. Slapped on Andrew in the Donington Park Ferme in 2010. Uh, yeah. Neil, Neil Hodgson and Rubens Aus, who were teammates at Ducati 2003 when Hodgson won the title and never got on. And also the famous one, Pier Francesco Keeley and Carl Fogarty at Acid in 1998, which led many people after Saturday um, and the bust up between Chaz and Johnny to say, oh, this bust up lacked was the dressing gown, which Pier Francesco <laughs> Keeley famously had when he confronted Fogarty in the press room at Acid in 98 in a dressing gown. Um, yeah. Classy. Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. World Superbikes cannot ever be sure or can never do without column inches. It does lack it a little bit. It could do Absolutely. with a bit of coverage. So is this, in a roundabout way, good for World Superbikes that it gets people talking? This has been arguably a bigger story than almost anything to come out of MotoGP this season outside of the shock of Valentino Rossi, the god of MotoGP, leading the championship at age 38. Outside of that, and, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, the, the well, I wouldn't say rise, the cementation of Maverick Vinales as a brilliant mm. talent, something we already kind of knew anyway. Yeah, I'd argue this has been the biggest thing to come out of the world of bike racing so far this season. I mean, 
Whilst he works, whilst he works on their social media, they're going all in on this. They've got both statements up on their social medias, on their Twitters. They're, they're referencing both of these columns. They know this is a big deal. They know this yeah. is a big deal. And Walt Superbikes has not had a story this big hit it since the Sykes and, and Laurie Spaz drama of 2014. And how yes, I remember when we talked about that on Bike Live and how Walt Superbikes completely missed the opportunity to really build that one up. They just let it. They just let it go, didn't they? Absolutely, they let it go and. That was the season of Team Wars. We had Marco Melandri commit controversy that same season in Magni Core by basically going half arse on, on on the Team Wars. Like, I'll, I'll win one race, but I'll I'll, I'll let I'll let Gintoli win the other one. Um, and again, of course, the 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 ongoing feud of Tom Sykes and Laurie Spaz and how it spilled over onto social media after the title was all said and done. Mm. And you know the 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 play fighting there, the handbags between Sykes and Baz afterwards. And again, you're absolutely right. I think. Well, too much dropped the ball on it. Let's be real here. We love drama. We love controversy. It makes cash, as Eric Bischoff used to say. Yes. Like we, we, we love this sort of shit. Like, 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 it's great entertainment. And like, I, I told Greg Haynes this earlier on Twitter. It's hilarious. I yeah. love this sort of thing. Like, as, as the official fighting correspondent of the Motorsport 101 Network, I happily endorse all terms of fracas. Mm. So yeah, like, I, I'm here for all of this because. Let's not forget, in amongst all this, these riders are human. And in, in amongst that, you're not going to get along with every work colleague you've ever had in your life. Sometimes you want to punch that work colleague in the face. And I am here to endorse all of that behavior. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, racing for a world championship is a highly charged environment. So you can understand tempers boiling over at one point. Um, we mentioned Tom Sykes and how he has been in the thick of these kind of fracas in the past. Um, on this occasion, trust it to be Tom Sykes to provide the light humour in all of this. Um, he, he did speak after Superpole um, in his first interview, part firmly of Superpole, where he talked about how he was basically he wanted to sort of stand in the corner with a, ba- a bucket of popcorn and watch it all unfold um, between his teammate and Chaz Davies. Um, and he ended up being the chief beneficiary because he qualified second uh, on the grid behind his teammate Jonathan Ray, but was then promoted onto pole. Um, when Jonathan Ray got his penalty, which meant that we had the hilarious scenario about an hour before race one of Tom Sykes having to smugly accept Jonathan Ray's Tiso Super Bowl watch in Pat Ferme <laughs> that should have gone to Johnny. Uh, and Johnny Hiscott interviewing Johnny, Jonathan Ray on the grid and saying, and fair play to Johnny, actually, because Kawasaki had asked Charlie Hiscott of Eurosport not to ask about the penalty, and Jonathan Ray just talked about it unprompted anyway. Um, in, on the interview where uh, Charlie Scott goes to Jonathan I've been asked not to about, ask you about the penalty but I'm just wondering who gets the watch and Jonathan Ray goes apparently Tom gets it and then just goes on and talks about the penalty anyway um, even though his team had asked him <laughs> not to be asked about it um, Tom Sykes is an interview on the grid and uh, sarcastically congratulated for his first poll of the year um, to which Tom Sykes just replies well you know I'll take it I'll take it yeah <laughs> uh, just so he can take his victories anywhere he can get them at the moment so he, uh, he smugly accepted his first poll um, since the end of last season first poll since uh, Hareth last year um, for Tom Sykes um, which sounds remarkable given that he used to take them for fun um, for most of his career into race one then and given the events of Super Bowl and the fallout from it I think we we're all really looking forward to seeing Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davies go at it in race one, which was the race we ended up getting, um, where Sykes couldn't quite keep pace with the top two of Ray and Davies in race one, Dre. Davies looked like he was 
doing a decent job of holding Ray back, to be honest, because Ray would often put moves on him in the fast left of Ramshuk, and then Chaz would just outbreak him every time into the final chicane, um, yep. which looked like Chaz might well be in a position to pull that off, but unfortunately, his Ducati Panigale saw to that that he wouldn't. Oh, it's 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 Imola 2015 all over again. Like it's it's hard not to pull one out for Chaz Davis on this one. Like that that was a race he looks set to win. He looks like he, he had the measure of the most critical passing area on track, and that is the final chicane. You know it, I know it. We've all seen it there. A rider can and will try it into that final chicane if they can get away with it. And it's a, like, Davis seemed to have it covered, as you say, much better under braking. Um, towards the final chicane, and then the Panagali engine decides to die again for crying out loud. I've talked about this before in BSB as well with John Hopkins, who's had some horrendous luck on that Panagali as well with constant mechanical gremlins. And that Panagali has hap it's happened again, mm. where, this, where this Panagali has had some sort of hiccup that has, has robbed the rider of a, of a performance. And again, Chaz Davis had 20 points yanked off him minimum by mm. by that by that engine hat by that engine failing and it robbed us of what would have been surely a very dramatic last lap clash yeah well John, jonathan ray eased away in the end to win that first race ahead of tom sykes who inherited second place um albeit a rather distant one Malcolm Landry onto the podium as well in that first race even though he was even more distant than sykes was um into race two then and we had the semi-reverse grid format of course that shaped the grid for race two none of those riders apparently that benefited from that none of those riders that started in the top six of race one were anywhere near the top six at the end of it um so just emphasizing once again how little difference those rules are making except no. dre except dre i guess it gives us the uh, the opportunity to see some brilliant showcasing of overtaking yet again by the Kawasaki. Jonathan Ray slicing through in that second race. <laughs> Jonathan Ray was leading the race by the end of lap three from ninth on the grid. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it is a beautiful thing to watch Jonathan Ray carve the field up that aggressively, that early on, in the middle of a pack. It is beautiful to watch. Like, I said it on Twitter at the time, I didn't have superlatives left for it. I was, I was in... I was in awe watching that. It was unbelievable riding from Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes, and to his credit behind him, who was pretty much following him through um, as it was happening. It was fantastic racing from, from Johnny. I mean, it, if nothing else, it makes the first three or four laps of a race fun. But I've, again, as you say, Sotheby, I think it's also proving that the, the gap between the big four and everybody else is so big that the, the semi-reverse grid really doesn't make a difference, um, which is a shame. But hey, it does give us a little extra flashpoint of entertainment as, as Jonathan Ray and Davis Malandri and, and Sykes carve their way through the, the the initial six on the grid that are in front of them. Um, yeah, it, it makes for great. It's, it's, it's great stuff for the first three laps, but inevitably, it kind of makes the rule look a little bit silly. Unfortunately, not through the fault of the rule itself, but because of the, the state of the field and the bikes themselves. Yeah, it does. You can you can kind of understand and, and kind of respect what the rule is trying to achieve but unfortunately the yes. the grid isn't the, the the field isn't in any position to really make that rule work kind of like in formula one whatever rules you put out at the moment the field is so spread out that whatever set of regulations you put in place the field's going to pretty much finish where it finishes unfortunately uh, at the moment um into race two then and after we mentioned jonathan race slicing through the field they end up having a battle this time with his teammate tom sykes jonathan Ray making an error midway through the race when he looked to have it pretty much under control 
Um, and Eric was then brought Tom Sykes right onto his tail, at which point Jonathan Ray basically decided that that was how the race was going to pan out, and rather than try and pull away and risk another incident, just basically fight it out with his teammate. And Tom Sykes very nearly beating him over the line. They were split by two hundredths of a second in the end. Um, and we'll come on to Sykes in a moment, Dre, but Jonathan Ray, that's his 11th win now at Assen in World Superbikes because, um, of course, he, he would often win there on the Honda. He absolutely loves the place. Um, and his championship lead now is sizable. 64 points over Sykes uh, and some 84 over Chaz Davies. Are we, are we at the state of calling this now? Um, I wouldn't say it's over, but I say the fat lady is warming up the vocal cords as we speak. She's going to take an injury, surely. Yeah, it, it's going to take an injury because as we've, like, that's the thing. Like, Tom Sykes has got a 0-8 and eight record against Jonathan Ray head-to-head -head this season. Sykes has not beaten Jonathan Ray on track this season. And he's now probably the best threat for the title, given that Chaz Davis is now 84 points off the top. And by the looks of it, an un and a combination of an unreliable Ducati plus Chaz probably having to override the bike mm. to, to really be in contention. Because like, on in, ra in race two, Chaz wasn't really anywhere in contention. He was always a distant third yeah. Yeah, as a result. I think Chaz knew the jig was up on race two and thought, let me just take this, let me just take the 16 points and get out of here, um, basically. But in any case, I think we're just about done here. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, Johnny's only five points off a perfect score. That's nuts. 195 out of, out of 200 points. So ironically, it was his 200th World Superbike Grand Prix. Um, but, but yeah, just Jonathan's won seven out of, out of eight, has finished second in the other, has barely put a foot wrong all season long. His qualifying game has greatly improved. There is no weakness in this man's game anymore. No. None. None whatsoever. And and in, in that sort of situation where he's won every single race he's qualified from the front in, as, as well as and he's won three out of the four from ninth on the grid as yeah. well. It's, 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 what can you say? Like, like there, there is no weakness in this yeah, man. How do you beat that? You, you don't. It's, it's as simple as that. He's practically invincible in terms of winning a championship. He's not making mistakes. He's qualifying well. He's not giving any opponents an inch. He's, he's doing a fantastic job. There's, there's no way of getting around it. He's doing a fantastic job and, like, no one's got an answer for him. Mm, yeah, Tom Sykes, who's, who's into second in the championship, if he wasn't already a world champion, Tom Sykes, we'd probably be looking at him right now and saying he's playing the perfect number two role um, as a teammate, because yeah. he kind of is. Um, he's second in the points, 64 points off the lead, and 20 ahead of Chaz Davies. <laughs> but given that Tom Sykes is a former world champion in his own right, we kind of don't look at him that way. We look at him as a guy who's trying to win another title. Um, so, so he won't be happy with the gap to his teammate. Um, we've spoken of John Murray having no obvious weakness at the moment. Um, for Tom Sykes, there appears to be one very obvious weakness with him, and unfortunately, and there's nothing, it's not something he could do an awful lot about. His big weakness seems to be his health right now. Yeah. Um, gosh, ever since Aragon, which was a month ago now, we, we've had to sit back and not realise that uh, Sykes has been dealing with a, some some sort of severe stomach or intestinal problem. That um, at, like they've, they've looked at different doctors, they've not been able to diagnose even what's wrong with him to this point yet. It was very reminiscent. We mentioned this before we went on. Area. It was very reminiscent of Casey Stoner 
uh, back I think in 2011 and 2012 where we just didn't quite know what was wrong with him until it's until we found out oh wait he just can't drink milk he's lactose intolerant yeah he ended up um, taking time off didn't he to try and get it sorted out and and yeah Tom Sykes since since Aragon I think it was said on Eurosport the weekend he's lost something in the region of four kilos in weight um yeah, over the course of that month um he's having to he's been having to fast um over, the, over that period as well um days of fasting um try and sort of get a handle on on the condition and what what's going wrong with him um and he, he's genuinely i mean world superbike races aren't exactly long are they dre i mean most gp races are 45 minutes or so world superbike races are closer to half an hour um mm-hmm. in length and Tom Sykes said at the end of the races, he said, when I got off the bike, my legs could hardly support me. He was physically drained at the end. He was exhausted. He looked like he, he, looked After like he was dead. After a half an hour race. Yeah, he looks like he was dead on his feet. You're absolutely right. He looked exhausted after a half an hour race. Not that I'm saying that a one two hour race isn't normally taxing because it is, mm. but not to the point where Jonathan, where not where, where Tom Sykes could hardly move. Um, yeah, like clearly there is something very wrong with him, and as you say, like he is extremely fatigued. He's obviously probably dehydrated. He's probably you know, just lacking energy because he's not been able to eat solid foods foods until Friday. And that and Aragon was a month ago. So that kind of says it all that Tom has been super struggling with this injury. And as you say, losing four kilos, which is the best part of eight or nine pounds of weight, is a lot of weight. And, like, he must be feeling like absolute trash right now. So the fact he came through that weekend with two second places is a super human effort all things considered <laughs> yeah it does kind of put his, his performances so far this year into a bit of context I, mean, I don't think any of us are saying for one second that he would be ahead of Jonathan Ray right now because Jonathan Ray's on another planet but he, he might well be closer or he might well have ran him closer in some of those races where he's been a little bit lonely in races for him to have what has he had six podiums out of eight something like that so far this season yep. and, and a number yep. a number of those are seconds to behind his teammate um, yeah he, he's not actually had a bad time. He's second in the championship, for goodness sake. So that's hardly... There's only one guy better than him at the moment. Um, just so happens that Jonathan Ray is a lot better than anybody else right now. Um, we mentioned Marco Melandrew had a bit of a, a bit of a weekend to forget, really. He did get a podium in race one, but he was um, a very, very lonely third. Um, and he, he was third in a two-horse race, essentially, uh, in that <laughs> first race. Um, he yeah. was nowhere uh, in the end, and then got taken down early on in race two. Um in terms of other people who had a disastrous weekend, Yamaha's weekend can kind of best be categorized as a weekend of two halves. Saturday was an absolute train wreck for them, most notably for Michael Vandermark, the home favorite who crashed on lap one um, and basically didn't finish that race and had to start deep on the grid. But to their credit, both Vandermark and Lowe's, who also crashed in race one, did salvage the situation in race two by getting themselves back into fourth and fifth, which is kind of where Yamaha have been all year. Pretty much, yeah, that, that's seemingly the realistic limit for them right now. And that was a good result given where they'd started on the field. And that big, other riders had good weekends like Xavi Fores and um, the Aprilia seemed to bounce back, which we'll get to in a minute. They, they had a pretty strong weekend by their standards. So, yeah, fourth and fifth was a solid result for Yamaha. Again, the bike clearly ha- has improved from, from year to year. And this year, it's clearly better than what it was last year. They just haven't got quite enough in it yet. To really give the the big two a, um, a a real you know a real fright, something to worry about. I mean, Vandermark tried his best to keep up with Davis, couldn't quite manage it, but still a very solid fourth and fifth nonetheless. Mm. And Vandermark looked for a lot of that second race, like he was actually keeping pace with Charles Davis as well, and that, mm. that he, he might have been in a position to to make a go for the podium, couldn't quite do it in the end. 
Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if they can keep this going, because of course, Imola last year was where their season completely went to pot when Gintoli broke his leg um, in Super Bowl, and Imola is next up on the calendar. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Yamaha can keep this uh, performance going when we get to there. Um, Aprilia, who you mentioned, Ray, they did make a genuine step forward this weekend. They've probably been the disappointment of the season so far, along with Honda, um, for their performances so far. Given that Aprilia are now back to essentially being a full factory team again in World Superbikes, they've been faffing around with that bike all year, running multiple-year-old parts on their bike. Um, and at Aston, it finally seemed to click for them. It did. Like again, like they they've been struggling all year long, and and you know, a combination of bad reliability, bad luck, and rider errors. It's not been, it's not been the prettiest of time for, a, for times for a prettier. But yeah, something seemed to stick this time around. Um, with with Laverty in a pair of eighth places, and you know Savadori was was better this weekend. A fifth in race one yeah, from the front row. From the front row, I mean. And um, again, sadly, I think that's a, I think that's a career finish for Zavador as well, actually. Um, but said not obviously a bit more, a bit less fortunate in race two. But in any sense, yeah, this was a much better weekend for Aprilia. And you know, I, I did enjoy Laverty's brief spell at the front of race two, um, yes. <laughs> for what it's worth as well. But, swimming um, against yeah. the tide. Yeah, swimming against the tide. No kidding. And. Um, yeah, like I, I did. I did like. I don't know if you saw this, but um, Eugene's wife Pippa had a very funny picture on her Twitter page of like the the Aprilia team and the family are, are, are huddling around the uh, huddling around a screen, and uh, the, the faces were still a bit dejected despite Laverty's pretty yeah. strong weekend. It was it was quite funny, but also a bit a bit sad at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and just to um, I've just been consulting Wikipedia. Um, Samadori's had two races better than this one. He's he's had oh. a career best of fourth in, in World Superbikes. One of them was Assen Race Two last year, the wet dry race where he was fourth, and he was fourth in Race Two at Donington last year as well. Um, but briefly on on Lorenzo Savadori, because this is a guy even if he's pretty right exactly having a great season. I mean, Savadori's had an injury hit start to the year. He had that horrendous crash at Thailand, which put him out of the the third round at Aragon, but. He, this is a guy that can really enhance his reputation, whatever the bike's doing, because he's got a guy who is a known quantity in Eugene Laverty, who's impressed us in MotoGP not so long ago, and has yeah. finished as a top three guy in the world in World Superbikes before. And it's pretty fair to say that so far this year, Savadori's had the measure of him. I think so. I mean, I've certainly gotten that impression around there. It looks like Savadori's got a bit more upside than Laverty does, the way it's going right now. Um, yeah, that he's been a bit more consistent, but you expect that from a rider of his level of experience and and and, and you know tax and you know given he's ridden just about everything you can ride out there in terms of relevant bikes and whatnot. So, given this is only Savadori's second year in the top flight, and the fact he's got a top five finish, which is three places better than anything Eugene's managed so far this season, kind of says a lot that this kid's very talented indeed, and you know he's he's got something here that maybe Laverty doesn't have. Yeah, it kind of makes you makes you realise why Aprilia was so keen to have him in this team. Because, Absolutely. Um, Savadori rode for the Iota Aprilia team last season and then when Sean, the Sean Muir team the Milwaukee team took over the ownership of the Aprilia bikes, the Aprilia factory wanted Savadori on one of them. Um, and of course, the Sean Muir Milwaukee side of things, they wanted Laverty on the other. So you can really see why Aprilia 
keep so hard for this guy because um, he clearly seems to have something. Um, two other manufacturers that we haven't mentioned, Envy Augusta, who um, had a mixed start to the season. Leon Camier doing the Lord's work again in race two, getting that bike up to sixth, um, which is as good as he's had since the opening round at Phillip Island. Um, but the other one is Honda, who have spent most of the season at the bottom of the manufacturer's championship standings. Um, but Stefan Bradl, who's hardly had the best of starts at Life in World Superbikes, going from 16th to 6th in race one. The best the Fireblades looked so far. Way to go, Stefan Bradl. That's exactly what they were looking for. Some of that MotoGP talent to come through. And that was a fantastic fight through the field from Stefan Bradl there. That was, a, that was by a mile, the best the Honda has looked so far in World Superbikes. It, it looks like they're... Firmly in that maybe second or so tier with the guys like like BM like the Altea team, the BMW guys, Leon Camiers, MV Augusta, the Aprilias. They seem to be somewhere in that sort of ballpark right now, and they've already taken steps forward from from where they were in Phillip Island, which is a good mm. sign. And if Bradle can crack the top six more often, then that's that's genuine real progress there. Yeah, Bradle might be the guy to look for because you kind of get the feeling his patience will last a bit longer than Nicky Hayden's will oh, uh, at that team. Um, Hayden, who finished down in 14th in race one, um, and yet did beat Bridal to ninth in race two. They were ninth and tenth. The full results from World Superbikes then. Ray, the race one winner from Sykes and Melandri. Uh, Xavi Forres got fourth, which earned him race two pole, but that really uh, benefited him not a jot. Salvadori fifth, Bridal sixth. Roman Ramos up to seventh, which I think equals his career best in World Superbikes. Um, Eugene Laverty in eighth, and Leandro Mercado ninth on the Iodit Aprilia. Leon Camia tenth, MV. Uh, the final points position is rounded out by Krimenaka, De Angelis, Rafa De Rosa, who's the replacement for Reiterberger at Altea BMW, Nicky Hayden, and Ayrton Badovini. Race 2, Ray the winner from Sykes again, although the margin of victory this time was just 25 thousandths of a second, uh, with Davies in third, Vandermark fourth, Alex Lowe's fifth, then came Camia in sixth ahead of Torres, Eugene Laverty eighth again, uh, Nicky Hayden in ninth, and Bradle tenth, both Hondas in the top ten, Ramos only 11th this time ahead of Mercado, Forrest from Pole down to 13th, Krumanak 14th and DeAngelis taking the final point um, in 15th. The championship standings then. Jonathan Ray leads it by 64 points from Tom Sykes. Ray has, as we mentioned earlier, 195 from a possible 200 points this season. Sykes has 131, which in any other season might not be too bad at all, but unfortunately he's 64 back at the leader. But 20 ahead of Chaz Davies in third. Marco Melandri is fourth. He went ahead of his teammate after race one, but dropped back behind him. After race two, the two Yamahas come next with Lowe's fifth and Vandermark sixth. Xavi Forres is seventh. Torres is eighth. Leon Camille ninth. And Eugene Laverty rounds out the top ten. He is the highest pretty rider in the championship at the moment. Um, on to World Super Sport then. Uh, and we've we've done pretty well, it has to be said, Dre, so far this season for um, the land of batshit crazy that we do call yes. World Super Sport. Um, so I guess we were due one miss. Keenan Safoglu saw to that. Yeah, dear. it's like we, we, we were clearly having too much fun in World Superbikes this year. So Keenan's back in. I was like, no, no, I'm here to restore more. <laughs> um, and yeah, Keenan absolutely obliterates the lap record in qualifying, then is absolutely untouchable in the main race. Yeah, it was well clear by a couple of seconds by the time we got to the end of the race. And yeah, Keenan absolutely back to his to his to his triumphant best. It's it's why he's the best super sport rider we've ever seen. And made it look very, very easy. And um, I almost wish he wasn't around him because we had a bit more fun yeah. when he wasn't around him. But, uh, but it is a nice reminder that the man is still an absolute demon. Yeah. Uh, 
just wow. Yeah, and, and what what a nice guy he is as well. You, you wouldn't actually yes. you wouldn't actually think it the way he rides on the circuit. Um, Bex will tell you that, given the uh, the rivalry that Safoglu had with Sam Lowe is back when Sam won his World Two Spot title. Safoglu put some very uh, crude moves on him uh, over the yeah. course of that season. But, but what a lovely guy, and of course we we all know from this show what he's been through in recent years. Um, oh, he's um, he's gone through experiences in his life that we wouldn't wish on anyone. Uh, as Keenan Safoglu. Um, so, so good to see him back with a smile on his face, given the injury-ravaged start to his 2017. The big story, I suppose, Dre, was what occurred behind Safoglu, because, of course, Luka Mahias, who leads the championship after that second place um, uh, in uh, Aragon, uh, or the win in Aragon, because he beat Marias on the line. Um, second position for him this time, after a bit of an unusual route to get there, should we say. What the hell was he doing out yeah. there? Like, 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 I'm dead serious when I say this. Is like, I watched that race with sheer confusion as as to basically just what on earth Lucas Mahias was doing out there because he he just ended up sitting back and going, huh, huh, huh? Because he made multiple mistakes. He was going wide on many equipment two or three times in the race. He'd gone wide and cost himself a couple of positions, and then on the final lap, going out of the last chicane, he's so confident that he's going to beat Jules Cazelle over the line for second place. He pops a friggin' wheelie. Now, don't get me wrong. If it, if, if it was for the win, I'd almost understand this. But this is he's popping a wheelie for second place, and he almost loses said second place to Cazelle. He only beats him by five thousandths of a second over the line. If the finish line is five metres later, Lucas Mahias finishes third and embarrasses himself in front of the entire Supersport paddock. And I, I think, I think Clazell said he was an idiot after the race and post-race interviews. Race, like, like he, just, he just didn't know what he was doing, but he, he just took he just took the points where he could get him. But, um, yeah, because cause it's looking at the championship as a whole, because Safoglu is on the board now. Um, Mahias might have needed those points if he'd lost them, um, because he, he leads... I mean, from first to ninth is Mahias to Sofoglu. The gap is 40 points um, between right. between the two with uh, eight races to go. Um, so so technically speaking, if Sofoglu wins all eight remaining races, he wins the championship on count back, even if Mahias takes second in all of them. Um, so Sofoglu kind of has it in his hands. I mean, he's probably not going to win all eight in a row, let's be fair. Um, but, mm. but that's probably going to be the story, isn't it now, Dre? Mahias... That's important second place, that, because if Sofoglu's back back to full fitness and back on form, Mahias might soon start looking over his shoulder a bit. Yeah, exactly. And it's Keenan Sofoglu. Like, you know if he has a smooth weekend, he's probably going to win that weekend's Grand Prix. He has an extra free temps in his locker that nobody else on the grid has in World Supersport. And that that is the greatest weapon that Keenan has got right now. And I think even more than the pace, it's fear. It's fear because you, you know he's coming. You know he's going to keep winning because that's just what Keenan does. Like, Lucas now has to think, I've got to take these points wherever I can get them. If I can punch Keenan in the nose metaphorically and steal a win off him, that could actually be more critical than any of the races Keenan may or may not win between now and the end of the season. Because Keenan will come in closer than those 40 points, barring something freakish again happening to him. Mm. But, um, yeah, Keenan will win a handful of races between now and the end of the year. It's up to Mahias to get the points where he can get him right now and hopefully not slip up and make a title of this. Because it's going to be interesting seeing just how many of these races between now and the end of the year that Keenan can win. <laughs> yeah, and where, where Mahias is and all that, because it's pretty clear that 
there are more than just those two riders in this class. It's been so jumbled up the so far this season that there's no guarantee that if Sapoglu keeps winning, that Mahais is going to keep finishing second, as as he proved at the weekend, where he very nearly lost it to Clozel. And Clozel taking third, Dre. He's seventh in the championship at the moment, four points ahead of Sapoglu, um, but 36 behind Mahais. Um, it's amazing to think, given how quick he's been at all four rounds so far, that that's his first podium of the year um, for Clozel. He's had so much bad luck. Um, and, I mean, if I guess if we're talking of Sofoglu as a title contender, we have to talk about Cluzel as one, too. Um, but, but but you do kind of feel as if that earlier bad luck is going to catch up with him. Cluzel could have easily had 50 more points he didn't get from the first two rounds, and that's going to be the ultimately um, very sad thing about Cluzel, was that this was by a mile his best chance to win the title, and through no fault of his own, he had two donuts coming out of the first two weekends, and that... He's probably going to stop him from winning the title overall. The only blessing here was that Keenan missed the first two rounds too. But do you really want to give Keenan no advantage at all? Yeah, you want to take full advantage of it, don't you? Exactly. He could have easily had 50 points. Instead, he had naught going coming out of Thailand. And that is an awful, awful mistake. Uh, almost mistake, but also just, just awfully regretful um, of Cluzel that he could have had so much more to, to his name than what he had now. Mm, yeah, speaking of awful, uh, we have to say that um, our, our honorary rider in World Supersport, Dre, and our dream of this season appears to be dying, because after finishing 15, oh! it looks like the dream of a Robbie Rolfo world title may well be fading. No, not not Rolfo. Like, we came so far for this. Um, yeah, it looks that way. It looks like Robbie Rolfo, you know, he, he's going to fall down in the order. It's it's type. It looks like the the, the the status quo is starting to, to you know to, to shape itself up again, <laughs> which is a shame because Rolfo was such great entertainment up the front, and um, the, the dream was was certainly one that was there, but it looks like the, the, like it's slowly fading at this point, which is just such a shame. Yeah, because I tweeted on uh, on Saturday afternoon, so of course World Super Sport uh, Super Pole follows World Superbike Race One, um, which meant it clashed with the Formula One qualifying in Russia. Uh, so, so I tweeted at 1 o'clock UK time on Saturday afternoon, following the Formula 1 qualifying, but with one eye on World Supersport Aston, come on, Robbie Rolfo. <laughs> I just desperately wanted him to get a pole position because he was in Super Pole 1. Um, so I was yeah. hoping that he'd get through, and unfortunately he didn't. He started 16th on the grid and came through to 15th and got a point. Um, but unfortunately, that's not enough for him because uh, here's how the race finished. Probably the winner from Mahias and Cluzel, PJ Jacobson in 4th. Um, Sheridan Marias, the second place man from Aragon in fifth. Kara Casulo, uh, the winner back in Thailand, finishing in sixth. Uh, Michael Canducci, who's one of the uh, Pachetti Junior riders in seventh. Luke Staplefoot on the Triumph in eighth. Christian Gamarino, ninth. And Rob Hartog, the Dutchman, uh, one of the European um, European Supersport riders. Um, that's a sort of separate championship within a championship. He was the top finisher amongst those in 10th. Um, a couple of other Brits in the points. Kyle Smith and Kyle Ride, 11th and 12th. Ahead of Hannes Sumer, Anthony West and Robbie Rolfo, who took the final point. Uh, Nicky Tooley, outside of the points, in 16th place, uh, which has done him some serious damage in the championship standings because Mahias leads it uh, on 65 points, 20 clear of Marias, the South African um, who finished fifth. Uh, Robbie Rolfo then down to third. Jacobson up to fourth ahead of Carl Ride. Uh, Caracasulo is fifth. Cluzel, uh, Caracasulo is sixth, should I say. Cluzel seventh. Tuli has dropped all the way down to eighth now um, and is just two points ahead of Sofoglu, who's ninth. And Canducci is tenth. 
And as I mentioned at the start of the show, we didn't get an awful lot of batshit crazy in World Super Sport this weekend. Um, and we found out why, Dre, because they transferred all of it to the new 300 class. What the hell was that? <laughs> um, uh, I, have, I have no words for how ridiculous that race was. Um, like the, the, the quality of this is if you watch this race via totally legal sources, <laughs> you will probably end up with the world feed version that Scott Redden joins in halfway through uh, um, to, to co-commentate alongside Steve English. And it's quality because you can hear <laughs> Redding yelp like a like a bitten dog every 500 yards. Because <laughs> 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 you just know it's like you just He's see terrified. It's terrifying because these riders are always like six inches away from a horrendous accident, and there was one on yeah, the got one, yeah. But um, yeah, there was a couple of nasty ones in there, possibly a broken ankle coming out of that out of that last lap incident as well. Because going through the, like one lap, going through the chain, that was about ten riders within, I'd say, five bike lengths of each other. It was absolutely ridiculous, and for the most part. Most of them behaved themselves and they came for okay. It is an unbelievable spectacle of a race to watch. Yeah, <laughs> go out of your way to see it. If you can get Absolutely. hold of it, watch it. It is so much fun. Um, it's just a hilarious 23 minutes of racing. Um, and we have to say, I mean, we, we did say this after Aragon. I mean, I had some, some criticisms of the class after the first round, but I did say, we, I think circuits like Assen and Hareth and Donington will suit it better um, than Aragon, which is wide open, far too big for Supersport 300s. Um, and I think it's fair to say Assen did suit this class, but it didn't. It looked a lot better than Aragon. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, Aragon was a, was not the best showcase race for a first race in a series like this because Aragon is an enormous circuit and these bikes, as, as mentioned, they've only got about 40 horsepower, so they're very slow and they look slow when they're racing on a track that big. Assen, which is a lot smaller, a lot more technical, and a lot faster. Assen, they looked, they looked a lot faster, and ex exactly. Some, sometimes context is everything in situations like this. And as you say, the, the, the slower, more technical track that Assen is, um, it, it it hid the frailties of the bikes infinitely better, and we got tight, close racing. So the series is already is already starting to find its feet, and this was as good, if not better, than any Moto3 race we've seen so far this season in terms of sheer entertainment value. So absolutely, this is this is working. And that and that was a much better showcase of what Superstock 3000 could, Super 300 could be in the future. Yeah, and we got three different manufacturers on the podium again. A Kawasaki, a Honda, and a Yamaha um, taking the podium spot. Um, and as Scott Redding quite rightly said as well, um, because those bikes are so by comparison to everything else, uh, they have such a lack of power. Um, you make up all of your time through the corners on these bikes. It's it, Your corner speed is king, really, on these bikes, um, which obviously around a circuit as flowing as Assen is great because there are so many corners, and if you carry that corner speed, you'll be rewarded for it. Um, and as Scott Redding said, if that's really the, the requirement for a bike like this, it's a really good test for riding. It's a really good way of honing your skills when... The way for you to be competitive on this bike is by carrying corner speed. I mean, go through the corners. That's really going to really gonna teach a rider and tutor a rider to make them better um, as they go through their career. Uh, in the end, as Dre mentioned, it built to a crescendo and a calamitous penultimate corner as the uh, as eight riders all went for one line through the Ramshuk, a couple of corners from home. Um, Finn De Bruyne, the Dutch wildcard, who um, 
won the KTM uh, RC World Final last year. Um, you might notice, if any of you have ever been to uh, BSB's uh, weekends, as Dre has, one of the support classes is the KTM RC Cup. Um, or, yep. or it was pre in previous years. Um, basically, the winners of all of the individual national championships within that took part in a world final last year at Assen, and Finn de Bruyne won it. Um, he was a wild card this weekend in Super Sport 300 and went for the Hail Mary at the penultimate corner, rode over the grass, decked it, and took about two others down with him, um, unfortunately, oh. um, at the penultimate corner. It was a terrifying accident as we were just hoping that riders were all going to get out of it without serious injury. As Drew mentioned, um, there was one of the riders involved in that who looks like he came out with a broken ankle given that one of the bikes rode over him um, yeah. as he was laid in the runoff. Um, the upshot of all of that is that we got him incredibly, given how mixed up this class is in its early stages. The same winner as we had at Aragon uh, two weeks ago. Scott DeRue, um, the Dutchman, on home soil, winning it for MTMHS Kawasaki, leading a Dutch 1-2 in the end, ahead of Glenn Van Stralen, who was a wild card on a Honda CBR 500. Uh... Coppola, the Italian, taking third. He qualified uh, on the front row of the grid. Uh, second row of the grid, should I say. Borja Sanchez, who took pole on the Saturday. Uh, he finished fourth for the second race in a row. Doran Lorero, the South African, taking fifth. Top five were covered by 0.3 of a second, would you believe, at the end of all of this. Uh, Mark Garcia, the second of the Spaniards on the Hal Courier, racing Yamaha in sixth ahead of Anna Carrasco, who led it, Dre, two laps out. Um, yeah. She looked like she might have been on course to become the first woman ever to win a world championship race at this level. She came very close to doing it. Very, very close, and but was sadly caught out by the rampant Scott DeRue with a lap and a half to go, basically. DeRue was nursing an injury, and it, it seemed like he was saving the ankle for the second half of the race, where he just surged through at the end of the Grand Prix and took the win by a bike length, basically. Um, a, a, a great performance of Anna Carrasco, there, very nearly making history um, to win a Grand Prix at that sort of level would be insane. Very, obviously very unlucky that, we, that she didn't end up winning in the end, but still a fantastic performance. Yeah, it was. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that, that injury from Scott Drew. Did you hear Greg Haynes referring to it on Saturday about how he got that injury? Apparently, apparently, apparently Scott DeRue got that injury stepping out of the car um, when he arrived on Thursday at, Ar- at Assen, which is incredible. Oh, no. um, all the ways to injure yourself ahead of your home round, but it didn't seem to slow Scott DeRue down all that much. He won anyway. Uh, as I mentioned, Carrasco taking seventh in the end, head of Harun Sabuk, who is one of the Turkish um, uh, protégés of Kinnan Swoglu. Um, he was eighth, ahead of Ruben Durakas, another of the Dutch riders in ninth, and Alex Murley, the top Brit home in tenth for Team Top aboard a Yamaha. Uh, championship standings then uh, after all of that. Daru leads it with 50 points, a perfect 50. He already has a 24-point lead uh, over um, Borja Sanchez, the Spaniard who's had two fourth places uh, from two rounds. Coppola's third on 21. Then comes Van Stralen on 20, although we won't see him again this season, we won't think, given that he was a one-off wildcard at his home round. Uh, Mika Perez next up in uh, fifth place ahead of Doran Lorero in sixth. Next round of the championship, uh, as with all the other classes, is at Imola um, in a couple of weeks. One other class, the Superstock Thousands, it was won by the Turk, another of Safoglu's protégés, Toprak Razgatlioglu on the Facetti Racing Kawasaki, ahead of the um, Aruba 
Picati of Michael Ruben Rinaldi, who won the opening round uh, and Aragon. Florian Marino, third for the Patti Amar team, ahead of Danny Dobor, who was another of the Dutch wildcards um, across the various classes. Jeremy Guanoni, fifth. Ilya Mikalchik, sixth. Uh, then came Max Sheep, Sebastian Suchet, Roberto Tamburini, and Luca Vitali. Ronaldi leads the championship after that victory um, at the first round and a second at the second round. He leads Raskatlioglu by seven points. Marino is third, uh, two points for the back. You'll notice a theme through all of those results. Um, and it's a point worth making, Dre, across all of the four classes at Assen last weekend. Every single race in every class was won by one make or another of Kawasaki. Beat him down! And that's three yeah. different bikes we're talking about as well. There's the 600 that won the Supersport race, the Ninja 300 that won the Supersport 300 class, uh, race, and then the Super Spec Kawasaki ZX-10RR uh, that won the Superbike race, and of course the sort of dumbed-down version of that that won the Superstock race. They're not really yeah. making a bad bike right now, are they? Yeah, I, I said it before. Kawasaki quitted MotoGP was the best thing that ever <laughs> happened to them. Like they, they have truly developed like the world's best line of racing bikes, and they are doing a tremendous job of that right now. Like Jonathan Ray doing a brilliant job, and you know Leon Haslam and, and Luke Mossy doing the business in, in the in the domestic series. And as you say, and that's in all four classes being won by Kawasaki's in some variety, that's incredibly impressive. Yeah, shout out to them. They are doing a brilliant job. And yeah, they are the world leaders at the moment in production bikes. On the line on that Superstock Super 1000 race um, for the weekend, there was a horrendous crash early on that saw the race red flagged involving the young uh, German Marvin Fritz, um, who um, suffered one of those accidents that we all, basically our blood runs cold when we see those kind of incidents where riders are run over um, early in a race. He is now being discharged from hospital with to say um, earlier on today he uh, suffered a long contusion uh, after that accident he was uh, ridden over by a fellow rider um, but we are happy to say that he is being discharged from hospital and will hopefully make a full recovery up next we will head over from the netherlands to alton park in cheshire to talk bsb there was no lack of action there too we'll talk about that next Yeah, let's head to Cheshire and Alton Park for the uh, third round of the British Superbike Championship and the second in a row to take place on a bank holiday Monday. And keeping up the uh, the run of form from the first two rounds, Dre, where Kawasaki won four out of four. Leon Haslam, early on on Monday, uh, extended it to five out of five, which must have left all of us watching that, thinking that we're in for a pretty ominous head-to-head -head between the Kawasaki's this season because Haslam looked superb in race one. He really did. He, like, he was in complete control of the race from start to finish. And... Shaky Byrne did a really good job of explaining it, given he finished um, second in that initial race one. And he talked about it with Matt Roberts after the race where he said, well, for the first, you know, two thirds of the race, you know, we rode a pretty comfortable place. So I was able to keep up with him. I was more than happy with it. And then in the second half of, or the last five laps of the race, Leon just put the hammer down. And after that, Shaky just didn't have an answer for him. Yes, yeah, because Shaky had run soft to tyres, hadn't he? 
Exactly. He, 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 that's the shaky thing now. He seems to be running the zero Pirelli level tie, which is softer than the, than the level one, which the Kawasaki's. Haslam likes having the rear, having the harder rear compound tire, um, given the fact that, um, you know, we saw what happened last year with Kawasaki where they had severe tire yeah. concerns in, in, in the middle part of, the, of last season when they were running softer compound tires. They were going on the harder tires, but Haslam has this knack of being able to make it work. And. It came into play in the second half of that race. Yeah, it did. And, and Haslam taking the victory from Chicago. Luke Mossy taking third. And uh, I think I remember you tweeting on the Monday, Kawasaki OP, because uh, they were just so dominant, um, having yeah, dominated the uh, the World Superbike weekend. Not like they were going to dominate the British round as well. Um, before we come on to what happened to Haslam in race two, um, because that was pretty much, uh, if you've, you probably see it go viral on the internet this week. Even if you don't follow British Superbikes, you've probably seen the incident uh, that ended Haslam's second race. Um, <laughs> but but it wasn't really going to affect the race winner, um, was it, Dre, in that second race? Because Shaky Byrne had already made a break. And and it has to be said, not just for Shaky, of course, who hasn't really had the greatest starts of the season because he didn't score a point um, in the first round because he was ruled out through concussion. It's an important result for the championship as well because Kawasaki needed taking down a peg or two and Shaky Byrne and Ducati did it. Yeah, after five straight rounds of Kawasaki victories, I'm I'm very glad that Shaky finally got one. Just to just to set it straight a little bit, Shaky made that race two look effortless um, out there. He got the early break he needed. Haslam got got punched about a little bit in the the, the start of the race by by Mossy and Ellison and others there that who you know had, had made very strong starts of the race. And Haslam, who was just starting to come into his own, well. Go on, Lewis, you explain. Yeah, well, he was battling for second with, with James Ellison, who'd had a, a horrendous race one, um, was going better in race two, was challenging for the podium. They were running second and third, um, coming out of Druids on the uh, back straight, the uh, back straight of Undulations on the way down to Lodge Corner. Um, James Ellison's bike cuts out at 160 miles an hour, and, um, yeah, there's no other way of saying this. Australia on Haslam, with no time to react, had no other option but to run straight up the back of him. Oh God, it's it's not so bad now. I haven't seen it a few times mm. over, but in real time, it was absolutely terrifying yeah. to watch on the camera. Just watching like Haslam just fall like straight on his shoulder, like he's flipped the bike over, like someone's just yanked the back wheel and flipped it. Like, like, it, it it's terrifying to watch. He, he goes straight through the barricade. The bike goes over the wall on the left hand side, and as you say, Haslam has driven into the back of Ellison's bike at 160 miles an hour, and well, Haslam was amazingly okay after this. Like a bit, the wind was taken out of his sails a little bit, but uh, so lucky. so many things that could have gone wrong there. First of all, for, fortunate that a Haslam didn't make any contact with the arm core alongside him. He just basically fell along the grass. Yes, um, because he could have. The only thing he hit was the polystyrene um, sponsorship boards, which obviously aren't going to do a lot of damage to him uh, at all. Um, but he could quite easily have hit the arm code. Thankfully, he didn't. Also, very, very fortunate that the cartwheeling motorcycle landed the other side of the arm code, so it didn't follow Haslam down the grass. It went the other Absolutely. side of the arm code and came to a rest there. Because if that bike landed on him, that was going to do some serious damage to him. And obviously, all the debris that flew off as a result of that um, mm -hmm. didn't hit him either. Um, we got away lightly from that, it has to be said, but really not a lot that either rider could do in this, was the Ray? I mean, Ellison had no warning that his bike was going to pack up on him. Um, and Haslam, of course, was going to have oh, no um, no warning that, that was going to happen either. And I guess we're, we're more likely to see this in a national championship where all the riders are much closer, perhaps, than in a world championship. But 
it has to be said, the one good thing that came from this was how lovely was it to see James Ellison basically running all the way up the hill to the scene of the accident to check on his fallen mate. Yeah, that was a good five, six hundred yard run that Ellison had. And had the moment he knew that the bike wasn't packed up, he got off the bike and, and, and ran over to Hazard to see if he was okay. You could see that Ellison felt truly awful about what had happened. Obviously, mm. nobody's fault at all. Just a just a just a complete technical problem on the bike, and it was a, a hellacious accident. And like Ellison knew right away just how serious this was. And his exhaust was hanging off. Yeah, the exhaust was hanging off his McCam's Yamaha as, as he was parking up, and that's serious. You don't normally see an exhaust hanging off a motorcycle like that. So, yeah, Ellison had probably ran the best part of 500 yards to go back over the corner and run to check if Hazlund was okay. Luckily, again, as I said, Hazlund was okay. And one of the things that's worth mentioning as well, one of the best commentary calls I've ever seen from James Witten to spot that almost immediately on the replay as it happened, the fact that he reckoned Ellison's bike had cut out and he turned out to be absolutely right. Because mm, like, he saw Ellison's head go up, didn't he? As yeah, if exactly. he was sitting up on the bike as if to say that was, something's sorry, packing that was, up. That, that was an unbelievable spot and I, I, I tipped my hat to James Whitten. That was absolutely top draw commentary from Whitten to spot that because I would never have noticed that in a million years. So that's a hell of a spot from Whitten. <laughs> yeah, it was and... Um... <laughs> Yeah, just it's just a chilling accident, and we're, we're so relieved to see that that Haslam is is okay. And mm. I guess given the championship format that we run now, pretty much no damage done to him. I mean, he, he didn't get any podium credits in the end. And Haslam, um, sorry, his teammate Mossy didn't either. He finished race two down in fifth, so he did close in on in the points. Mossy's now just three points behind Haslam, but didn't gain any podium points. And although Shaky got five, um, Haslam really can come away from this weekend again. Given that A's in one piece and B he took a win, you can really look at this weekend as a fairly successful one. Yeah, I mean, he only lost three podium credits to Shaky Bird overall, who right now, yeah, he will probably get back into the showdown eventually. And he's three points away from that spot after picking up 45 out of the possible 50 at Alton Park this weekend. But in, in the grand scheme of the championship right now, that's still a pretty reasonable result for Hazlam. I don't think he'll be too dejected. Coming away from there, coming away from Alton Park this weekend as we head towards Knock Hill for the next round. But um, yeah, Haslam, I think, will take that in the grand scheme of things. He only lost three podium credits to Shaky, who still has a lot of work to do to get back into that real, you know, showdown contention spot right now. So yeah, as it stands, I think Haslam will take it given what had happened to him. Mm, absolutely. And Luke Mossy, who didn't really quite back up what he did at Brands Hatch on the Indy Circuit where he took the double, but. You know, that's quite a hard act to follow, it has to be said. Um, um, but a solid enough weekend for him. We, we have to remember that we are comparing him with um, two riders who basically raised the bar in British Superbikes last year, Haslam and Shaky Byrne. Um, so for Luke Mossy to finish third behind the two of them in race one is hardly a bad result, let's be fair. Um, and he was one of the riders that kind of, I think I think he kind of paid the price for a poor tie decision in race two because he slowly fell back in race two. But he comes away from the weekend, only three points behind the outright championship lead. So Luke Mossy again, although it's not the greatest of weekends, he didn't quite hit the heights of brands. Another solid weekend for him. And another podium credit for finishing third in race one. So yeah, Luke Mossy will take that. Um, again, like he's he is the number two guy in the championship right now. Like how like how upset could he possibly be? I don't think I think if Mossy had said we'll give you 108 points through the first six races, he'd have bitten your arm off for that. Especially given there is a double victory in there as well. 
like like Mossy is now a legitimate race winning contender now, and you know he is becoming an elite guy in the class, which is something that we you know, we were teasing about the possibility of last season. It's happening. This is it for Luke Mossy. It's coming true for him now. Yeah, it is, and he's. He's some 50 points clear already of the guy in seventh. So I think we're pretty much already at the point where we're looking at Mossy being in the show now. And anyway, he's looking pretty good to get in there. And you're usually talking probably around the 150, 160 point mark to get in the showdown um, later in the year. So he's, he's not far off that uh, already. Um, that's pretty much the buy usually aim at to be sixth in the championship at that stage uh, of the season. Um, but it is going to be interesting, Dre, to see who fills up those remaining spots. Because I think we're pretty confident to be suggesting that Haslam and Mossy are going to be two of them um you'd think Shaky Burn would be another but he's still outside it at the moment so he's not got a lot of margin for error um it has to be said any more DNFs and he might well be sweating a bit uh, to get into that top six um but there are a number of riders in that top six at the moment that are showing no sign of going away most notably Christian Iden who did go away after a strong start to last season but he looks like he's consolidating it yeah, great fourth place in race two was all Eden recovering from what was like race one when we finished April was like, oh, is this is this the Eden slip from last year yeah. coming into play again? No, nope, he bounced back quite strongly in race two. So yeah, it looks like the Eden hype is real on that BMW, and especially given that nobody else seems to be getting the best out of that bike right now. I mean, the next nearest BMW is Peter Hickman in in eighth place, who's you know had a couple of top fives, but has not really challenged for the podium. And Eden has got some solid podium credits to his name as well, given he had the third in Donington and then the third and the second at uh, Brands Hatch last last time out. So Eden looks like he could be putting together a real solid showdown campaign here mm. with, for the first time, which will be a nice again another refreshing change to see a guy that another young guy another young Englishman there in BSB well not the young he's 32 but still um, you know he's oh, young by shaky burn standards young by shaky standards but just a, a different name like, more than anything else like we've oh, seen a different manufacturer too yeah exactly nice to see BMW back in there as well even though if, if you ask a certain Rebecca James like, mm. the sports is a bit, a bit lacking unfortunately but hey it's still looking really good out there he is and um, yeah you mentioned no other riders making that BMW work um, The one of the names obviously springs to mind is David Giuliano, who was still out injured for the Alton Park round. He was replaced by Alistair Seeley. Um, there were some rumours that I read on Twitter, particularly from um, the uh, MCN um, department. Of course, they cover British Superbikes extensively that we might not see Giuliano return to that team, um, which would be astonishing at such an early stage of the season. Um, depends, of course, how bad that injury is as to whether we see Giuliano again and whether he fancies a return um, to British Superbikes. Um, but Eden's third in the Championship at the moment after the first three rounds on 86 points. Um, Josh Brooks sits fourth. Glenn Irwin next up in fifth, ahead of Jason O'Halloran, who both had sensational weekends. And um, this is now not becoming a surprise, is it, Dre, that Glenn Irwin takes that BYZ Ducati to the podium? He's looking the real deal now on that bike, giving that Panigale its first ever BSB 1-2. Billy Wiz would be proud of that one. That was a superb result from Glenn Irwin there, especially in race two, where... He rode the best I've ever seen Glenn Irwin ride in BSB. That was incredibly impressive. And the, the, the fact he had that third at Donington race two, it seems to, it seems to be that he takes race one to learn himself a little bit. And then race two, he'll come alive a little bit. And that is what's happened again here. He's learning fast. And again, that Ducati's got some real pace on it. And Irwin is looking like a solid number two guy for Ducati now. And that could be the perfect thing that Ducati needs. Like if, if, if they could get a second rider into the showdown like Glenn Irwin and to back up shaky then that would be even better for Paul Bird given that again it looks like we're going to have both of the speed fit Kawasaki's in there with Haslam and Mossy 
by the looks of it by any stretch. So if if if, if Ducati can counter punch by having both of their guys in, in, in the showdown when that rolls around the Alton Park again, then uh, who knows what could happen. But yeah, Irwin putting together a hell of a package. Fantastic performance in race yeah, two. Yeah, he really is coming on strong now. And another guy that's doing that is Jason O'Halloran, who finds himself in the top six, which I think it's fair to say, Trey, is not where we expected to find either him or Dan Linfoot at this stage of the season, given how much that new Honda has struggled in just about every class it's raced in over the course of this season so far. Jason O'Halloran giving the new Fireblade its first podium. Fantastic result from O'Halloran as well. He he looked really gritty out there. That was O'Halloran back to back to his best. Um, it was like he was riding last year's bike again around the middle of last year when Honda looked really really strong. But one thing to notice here, O'Halloran results. He has been he has gotten better every single round. Yeah, he's, I that. He, he's 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 had the Fireblade tenth two tenth places in Donington. Then the Brands Hatch. He was seventh in race one, fifth in race two in Holton Park. He finished fourth in race one, and then he's got on the podium um, in race two. So Halloran has gotten better every single race. He's ridden that new Fireblade so far, which says a lot for Dan Linford, who didn't score a single point out of this weekend with a pair of 16th place finishes. Very peculiar indeed. But again, stunning stuff from O'Halloran, all things considered. Yeah, it kind of makes you think that it was the rider making that thing go. And, and, and O'Halloran is the only rider really that is making that Honda go at the moment. He just seems to have a really calm head on him, doesn't he? He just doesn't, even when even at the start of the season when they were qualifying mid-pack, he, he kind of knew what he was in for with that bike. Um, kind of like Stefan Bridal, I suppose, in World Superbikes. He knows what he's in for there, O'Halloran, so he's prepared to go with it and, and work on it. And yeah, he's he's the last two years he's done this, where he's been in the top six, where we somehow find a way of being surprised that O'Halloran's up there, just because he kind of goes under the radar. But I don't think we should be anymore. He's he's doing such a good job on that bike. And yeah, at the moment, that top six includes two Kawasaki riders, a BMW, a Yamaha, a Ducati, and a Honda at the moment, um, which is fantastic for the championship. Um, but you've got Shaky Burn in seventh now, just three points outside the top six, aiming to shoot at that top six and knock one of them out. Um, I hate saying this, Dre, given that he's an ex-champion and given that Rebecca James in particular is a huge fan of him, but I kind of worry that Josh Brooks might be the man most under threat there. It doesn't look like Brooks has got the consistency out there to regularly challenge for the podium. He's, he's like... Like Anvil Tag is just it just doesn't seem like it's quite there yet. It looks like like in some cases people like Ellison, who again was looking very strong in, in, in both races at an old part this time around, might be on the stronger overall Yamaha package and it just seems like there's more like I would rather I mean look at it now, like you said. I'd put Haslam in, I'd put Shaky in, I'd put Mossy in, I'd probably put Christian in there. That's four. Uh, Irwin might be number five. O'Halloran could be six. Right now, it could be a matter of someone like Brooks fighting Irwin, O'Halloran, maybe Peter Hickman, maybe James Ellison, maybe even Tommy Bridewell and Linford. Who knows? Like, there could still be five or six guys that are fighting for maybe one showdown spot. And I'm not sure I would pick Brooks to come through there compared to everybody else. No, it, it kind of it hinges on that Yamaha coming on strong in the second half of the year as he did for Brooks two years ago 
Um, but I don't think there's any guarantee that that's going to happen this year. Um, no. But Brooks is doing a good job, it has to be said, of just basically picking up points in every round and keeping it consistent. But he just doesn't seem to have that extra bit of pace to challenge the front guys yet um, at the moment. So that's kind of what Brooks is going to have to find if he's going to have any hope of making the showdown because there are fast guys behind him in the championship. At the moment then, race one went to Haslam for Byrne and Mossy. Oh, Halloran taking fourth ahead of Hickman and Ellison. Brooks in seventh, Iden eighth. Erwin ninth, and the top 10 completed by one of the impressive young riders in BSB today, Jake Dixon. Race 2, burning the winner from Erwin. That's the first ever Ducati Panagali 1-2 in BSB. Um, BY's Ducati 1-2. and O'Halloran third for Honda, ahead of Iden and Mossy. Brooks in sixth, Hickman seventh, Bridewell in eighth for the WD40 team. John Hopkins ninth on the Moto Rapido Ducati Panagali, and Billy McConnell for FS3 Racing in 10th spot. Uh, Sullivan Gintoli, who I'll have news on in a moment, he finished 11th in race 2. That's as good as it got for him over the course of the weekend. Championship standings then, Haslam leads it by 3 points. He has 111 points to Mossy's 108. He also has 5 more podium points than his teammate at the moment. Uh, Christian Eden in 3rd on 86. Brooks then next up on 67. Irwin 63. And O'Halloran 61. That's your top 6. Shaky Byrne then next up on 58. With Hickman on 57. Um, then a bit of a gap to Ellison in ninth on 31 level with Tommy Bridewell. Shaky Byrne is up to 8 podium points at this stage of the season. That's 11 down on Haslam. He'll look to eat into that in the rounds that follow. Um... Headlines in the support class is made really by Taron McKenzie once again, who remains undefeated in the British Supersport class. He has now won six races out of six. Take <laughs> that, Jonathan Ray. Um, <laughs> McKenzie looking unbeatable at the moment as he defends his Supersport Championship whilst in the Superstock 1000 class. Mason Law winner, but that unfortunately doesn't tell the story. Um, I hope you weren't tweeting during this race, Dre, because James Raspoli from the lead crashes two laps from home. I did as well. I was oh. like, come on, James. And then I was like, and then I see, because it wasn't, they weren't airing the race. Yeah, it was in the morning, wasn't it? And at the time, I was like, Raspoli falls from the lead. I'm like, no, <laughs> not again. And oh, I, I felt so awful for the kid. Like that, that had Raspoli win written all over it. And down he goes. Like, James, if you're listening, I really am sorry. Um, I don't know why I keep doing this. It's like I should just shut up whenever you race now because it's the second, it's the second race in a row. He's blown it from a great position. It's just oh, it's painful. Yeah, and the poor guy tweeted as well after after the race. He, you could just see him pouring his heart out on Twitter after the race out because he was absolutely gutted. Um, they'd done that. He tweeted, I have no words. Massive apologies to my team. They gave me the winning package. Two laps left with a two-second lead. Cheers to everyone. And he accompanies it with an image of him basically being hugged by, um, I don't know who the person is that's hugging him trackside, but you can see as if Raspoli is basically on the verge of tears there, oh, uh, having given up um, a, an almost certain victory um, with two laps to go. We hope that he can um, put that behind him and challenge for victory in the next round of the British Superbike Championship, which is a couple of weeks from now. Uh, right, let's do the news then. Uh, and we'll start with the Speedway GP Series, which got off to um, it's, uh, the start of its season last weekend. First round uh, last weekend in Latvia and a surprise winner in the end, Martin Vachilik taking the victory um, ahead of Freddie Lindgren, um, Patrick Dudek and Jason Doyle. Not the four riders you would have expected to contest the final, but those are the four that did. Um, so um, Lindgren leads the championship despite finishing second. Don't ask me why. Maybe Bex will tell you, because I have no idea why Lingren leads the points, but he does. They both have 16. Um, and then comes Dudek on 11 in third place. Um, or 13, should I say, in third place. 
one ahead of Doyle, who finished fourth in the final. Uh, Emil Saifudinov, Greg Hancock, Mate Zega, and Nils Christian Everson, the losing semi finalists, uh, which means they are fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth overall. Ty Wolfenden, who won his very first ride of the night, the first heat of the night of the season, didn't win again and missed out on the semi-finals. So he's ninth overall at the moment, just ahead of Peter Pavlitsky, Bartosz Zmarzlik, and Bex's Bay, or at least one of them, Matsy Janowski, who's 12th on six points. Um, last weekend also, so start of the CEV season for 2017. Shout out to friend of the show, Tom Brooks, who made his commentary debut on the Dawn of World feed uh, last weekend at Alba Fetti. Um, and he saw Jeremy Alcoba win the opening race of the Moto3 Junior World Championship ahead of the Kazakh rider uh, Maka Yurchenko. Um, it was a close run thing between the two uh, and in the end a photo finish going to Alcoba for the Estrella Galicia Junior team. Um, so he's the kind of rider that will be putting pressure on the likes of Kanet and Bastianini this time next year if he goes on to win that championship. Um, Yachenko, who rides for the Avintia Academy team in second. Uh, third place going to Shaun Masia, uh, who kind of took advantage of a number of incidents ahead of him. Most notably the two or two of the Asia talent team riders taking each other out as they competed for the podium. Um, Masia taking advantage of that to take third. Dennis Foggia, um, who rides for the VR46 Academy, finishing fourth. Uh, ahead of um, a number of riders, including um, an Indonesian whose name takes some pronouncing. Um, Wong, Tan Wong Tananen is his name. Apiwat Wong Tananen down in eighth place. Um, just behind Andy, just behind Andy Farid, who was another Indonesian in fifth. Um, sixth place going to Bruno Irachi ahead of Sergio Garcia and the aforementioned Wong Tananen in eighth. Uh, Roy Skinner for the Brits in ninth. Uh, he races for the Racing Steps Foundation team. Uh, he finished just ahead of Vincenti Perez and Charlie Nesbitt, uh, formerly of uh, Cool Fab Racing and the British Motorstar Championship. He is another Estrada Galicia junior rider, and he finished a superb 11th on his full-time debut in the Moto3 Junior World Championship in the Moto2 European Championship. Um, <laughs> it's brilliant who wins this race, Dre, in the Moto2 class, um, because Hafiz Sayarin, on a weekend off, decided he'd go to Albacete and race in the Moto2 CE uh. Championship and won the race comfortably. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that Grand Prix experience showing, guys. Um, Sayarin taking the win for Malaysia for the Patronus Race Line of Malaysia team, which is exactly the same team that he races for in the Moto2 World Championship. So um, he's got his eye in ahead of Jerez this weekend. Sayarin, uh, he took the win ahead of ahead of Hector Garzo, the Spaniard, on a Tech 3 in second. Augusto Fernandez third, ahead of the defending champion Stephen Odendal in fourth. Eric Granado fifth, Brazilian, ahead of Dimas uh, Pratama in sixth. Um, Marcel Brenner in seventh. Joe Roberts, an American doing well. I never thought I'd see the day. He was eighth, huh? ahead of Federico Fellini in ninth. And another American, Jason Uribe in tenth. Um, so Sirin leads the championship in Moto2, although whether we see him again remains to be seen, given that he'll be busy racing in the Grand Prix class. Um, but that was your CEV action from the weekend. Um, switching our attention back to MotoGP then for the remainder of this show, and uh, a few pieces of news from MotoGP before we look ahead to this weekend. Um, and the first piece of news surrounds the race after next, the French Grand Prix. Um, and it turns out, Dre, that they won't just have Jean Zarco and Loris Baz to cheer for this weekend. Um, and it's a good job that Dre's with us for this show, because this is um, a piece of news that will definitely go down well with Mr. Harrison. Slinging Tolly's back! Glorious! <laughs> no, I won't give in, I won't give in till I'm victorious! 
Hashtag still with Gintas. Yeah. It's the Gintas homecoming tour. Gintas is coming home. He swapped, the, he swapped the Suzuki Superbike for a better brand of Suzuki bike. Yay! Like, like I am here for all of this. Like, yes, this is fantastic. Um, a good call, in all seriousness, from the Suzuki team to get an experienced former MotoGP rider in there that knows the Suzuki package well enough. And, yeah, Gintoli's an ideal fit. Um, for whatever they, do. They, they, they don't really want to run their test rider in an actual race. Let's be real here. Like throw the guy, throw the name guy on there and see what sticks. But uh, I believe it's the first time I think since I want to say 2006. I think since we had three Frenchmen in the same MotoGP race. So it, it's nice to see a, um, a, a it's, just, it's just nice to see the French influence back in MotoGP for the first time in a while. Yeah, I just found out from a friend of the show, Tom Brooks, on Twitter, who put it out there. Three French riders on the grid in MotoGP next time out. The last time that happened was in it was the 2007 Italian Grand Prix with Randy Depunier, Olivier Jacques, remember him, and Sylvain Gintoli. Um, so that should give you an idea um, of what we, of just how long it is since we've had three Frenchmen in the top class. So, uh, yeah, great to see. Olivier Jacques, the Shanghai superstar himself. Um, back from back from yes. 2006, when uh, the, the famous story when the uh, Yamaha team didn't have a pit board for him, given that he was a replacement, so they just put OJ uh, scribbled handwriting <laughs> on Valentino Rossi's pit boards, telling him that he was the guy in second. Valentino Rossi's riding, yeah. around thinking, "Who's this OJ that's chasing me?" Because <laughs> he had no yeah. idea who that guy was. But yeah, as you say, good to see. Yeah, good to see three French riders on the grid, and yeah, they're gonna have a lot of fun, aren't they, at the at the French Grand Prix? Because Zarco is looking like the real deal in this championship now. Um, so imagine what he'll get up to uh, at Le Mans in a couple of weeks, and um, yeah, um, any excuse to play La Marseillaise, the greatest national anthem in the world. Um, I'm all for yes. that. Um, so let's wait and see if uh, if Gintoli can do that. He'll be replacing the injured Alex Rins um, for the French Grand Prix. Um, as Dre mentioned, uh, the test rider, Takuya Suda, who's in for this weekend's Spanish Grand Prix. Um, don't expect too much from him. That's all I'll say uh, this weekend uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez. Um, other piece of MotoGP news, which doesn't surround this weekend, or indeed this season, more future seasons in MotoGP. Uh, it surrounds Valentino Rossi. Um, there's very little MotoGP news that doesn't surround him in some way, shape, or form. Um, but um, he is look, already looking to the future, as we know, with his VR46 Academy. You've just heard me going through the CTV results and mentioning a, a VR46 Academy pro- prospect who finished fourth in the Moto3 Junior World Championship. Rossi also has um, Moto2 teams, Moto3 teams, um, and it turns out that if he wants it, he's got a MotoGP team too, Dre. Yeah, basically, um, I think it was um, Commando Esperalta, the uh, one of the top boys at Dorna, was basically coming out today on Autosport.com and said, if if Rossi wants a team, he can have it regardless of of how many bikes are already on the grid. So the MotoGP has a current limit of 25 bikes in any given circumstance. I think there's 23 on the grid right now. Um, so even if another team joins MotoGP um, in in the near future, and we have when we hit the limit of 25, Rossi can have a one or two bike team in MotoGP if he wants it. So yeah, basically an incredible amount of red carpet throwing out there. <laughs> Fans are like, hey, what a MotoGP team? Step right up. It's all yours, my friend. Join the back of the grid. You know you want to. Um, so, yeah, very intriguing indeed that um, Rossi's been basically been given first rights to, to a MotoGP grid slot if he wants it, which begs the question, why? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's... 
I, I can kind of see why Donna are doing this. I mean, I, we, we were talking about this before we started the show. And for me, the, the, how this sits with me all depends on what this team would actually be there to achieve. Um, if this is just a Valentino Rossi vanity project, um, then I don't think it has any point on being on the grid unless it takes an available slot and actually gets in the right way. Um, it should just be given a spot on the grid just to basically just to mean we get shots of Valentino Rossi stunning in carriage somewhere. Um, if that team <laughs> is a genuine academy, as as the other teams would appear to be, uh, in certainly in Moto Three with Bulliger, um, Moto Two with Banyaya, um, in CEV with Foggia, and of course that Moto that CEV team basically gave us Bulliger. That was the team that Bulliger rode for when he won the Junior World Championship. Then I'm all for it. If it's a team that's actually going to bring on future riders in MotoGP, then I, I'm, I'm all for this team getting on the grid. But that depends on it. Is that what this team is actually going to be for? We don't know. Um, as you say, I, th I mean, I think the way you described it, I think was actually pretty reasonable and very fair. Um, as you say, like Rossi is clearly trying to build a ladder. He, he and he, he's he's probably going to get the first man to reach the top of that ladder in Frankie Morbidelli for next season, most likely. Um, but he's got other guys in there like Lorenzo Baldassari and um, you know Pecco Baniaia, and the list goes on and on with, with potential prospects and big names that that could climb the ladder and get into MotoGP one day. Um, He's not the only guy that's wanted this, though. Like, I've mentioned no. this before. Like, like Kiefa has had interest in having a MotoGP seat before. Um, Pons has had an interest in having a MotoGP seat before. Because given you know the Yellow Pages team have had, and uh, in recent times have had a tremendous job of, of nurturing young talent like um, like like Fabio Quattararo now and in the past uh, Maverick Vinales, Paulus Bagaro, Tito Rabat, um, you know, some some great names he's, that, that have gone through the Pons team at some point. And that would be another ladder being completed in that regard. I think um, um, Aki Ayo has had interest as well in having this as well. He was, go, he was look, he was going to join up with KTM before KTM thought, oh, we're going to take the factory boys instead and basically take Paul Swagger and Brad Smith to build their team around. But again, Ayo had interest. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, amongst the current grid of 23, the 24th spot is currently reserved the LCR team should they return to two bikes. Uh, in the future, of course, they, they went from two to one when they lost their title sponsor a year or two back. And the current satellite outfits, they have sole right to the non-factory slots that they currently occupy until 2021. Um, so, obviously, any spot for the VR46 team would have to be an additional slot. Yes. Um, so, yeah, like, again, they'd be giving extra grid slots to Valentino Rossi, which, again, you could argue is... Uh, debatably unfair in its own right because if, if someone like Pons really wanted an extra seat on the grid would he get the same luxury? No. I'm not so sure on that. I don't think he does but I think because it's Valentino and because of the name value attached to Valentino of course Esperanza and Dorna would bend over backwards That's to get exactly more That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. That's for me. That's for me where it doesn't quite sit so well is that I don't yeah. think, because, like I say, from my point of view, if this Valentino Rossi VR46 team is a part of an academy and part of a structure to bring young riders on, then go for it. But I don't think that's Dorna's thinking here. Dorna are just desperate to keep Valentino Rossi as involved in MotoGP beyond his riding career as they possibly can. Absolutely. He's the biggest name to ever grace their sport. There's a lot of people that probably yeah. owe Valentino Rossi paychecks as we speak. Um, he has done more for motorcycle racing, arguably more for motorsport than any other man in terms of an individual rider or driver presence, maybe ever, in terms of just overall influence and, and what he's done for bike racing. And so, of course, 
given how strong his brand is, how synonymous the Doctor is, and given how much yellow you see at every Grand Prix weekend you, you, you go to, there, there is a sea of yellow. And regardless of venue, he's the one transcendent figure in bike racing. No one is in that same luxurious position as him. So for that to be a thing, of course, if you're Dorney, you're going to want to keep that name and that brand around for as long as possibly, long as you possibly can. And the, having the VR46 team on the MotoGP grid is the perfect antidote to that. Mm. Yeah, they've got one other piece of breaking news as well before we talk about this weekend. And I, yes. Dre, Dre, I don't know if you've seen this. I um, have, yeah. Because we asked a couple of weeks ago, what's next for Danny Kemp um, in, in his Grand Prix career? Well, we have our answer. Um, and uh, I'll let Aki Ayo tell you what that answer is. Um, because he has said earlier today, uh, after learning of Dekent's situation in the World Championship, the team, Red Bull and KTM, have the joint idea of asking him to test and develop our bike. Danny is a rider who has already been part of the team in the past. We know how well he works and how he know, and he knows us. And we believe that with his experience, he can give us a very interesting point of view for the technical development of our bike. In addition, whatever rider needs is to compete. So we have offered him the opportunity of a wildcard ride at Le Mans with us. I am convinced that the outcome of this collaboration will be very satisfactory for both parties. So it, it is only a one-off wildcard, Dre. For the second time in his career, Kent's going back from Moto2 to Moto3. <laughs> Translation, Antonelli's been a bit shit, as, yep. has most of, as has most of KTM so far this season, given that a KTM has not cracked the top four so far this season. So let's call the world champion out of work. Yeah, let's call the world champion and the, and the last guy to win a title on a KTM not named Brad Binder. And let's bring let's let's bring in Danny Kent and let's see what and let's see what he's got. Because I reckon if Kent ends up being good at Le Mans, which he was last a couple of years ago in his title campaign where he finished fourth from 31st on the grid, I remember that race very vividly, um, that Kent had a real shot at winning that Grand Prix. Like, he's strong around Le Mans. He's been, we all know his strengths in Moto3 and given how strong he was in this championship year with Leopard. Why the hell not? KTM's got nothing to lose in this situation. And, you know, it is kind of funny seeing Danny Kent there. The, the guy, I mean, I don't know if anyone's read, I don't know if you've read it, but if you, if you read the lengthy piece that David Emmett wrote on MotoMatters.com, it's a spectacular mm. piece, by the way. I highly recommend you go out of your way to read it. It's tremendous journalism. And I also applaud Emmett for giving for giving um, Kent the right to reply, which is something that you don't normally see mm. um, in journalism. So, again, that is also a very cool site. Um, but, like I said, um, brilliant, brilliant bit of journalism on Kent and the situations. Like, given his attitude and given the, the questionable attitude that he's had in, in Moto2 and Moto3 to date, are you sure you wanted to bring him on to develop your bike? Do you sure he knows best? But um, but in any case, like, given that KCM has been so mediocre so far this season... They really have nothing to lose, so why not go for it? Yeah, very true, and it, it, it's strange this with Danny Ken because I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's really a sport now where you can make a career for yourself in the lower classes as you could in the past. You look at guys like guys from the previous year, you know, eras, like Angel Nieto and people like that, who basically made a career for themselves in the lower classes. They were never really. Um, you, there were many riders who never really were stars in 500s as it was then but they made right. a career for themselves kind of like Safoglu's doing in World Supersport making a name for himself and making a career for himself as a super sport rider um, I don't know whether Danny Kent is really in a position where he can make a, a career for himself in Moto3 and Moto2 um, and how old is Danny Kent now? he's mid-20s isn't he? Um, 23 oh he's 23 so he's still got a few years left where he's eligible to race in Moto3 but he's already won that world championship so I kind of, I'm still struggling to see, see beyond this wildcard outing where Danny Kent goes. 
Um, because I just think it would be such a... It'd be what he'd be saying about himself if he went back to Moto3 again and began racing regularly again in Moto3. Because he's been there, done it, and won it. Um, so absolutely. so he would be telling absolutely nothing by winning it again. Um, so, yeah, that that's but that's Danny Kent. That's what he's up to at Le Mans. So not only will we see Sylvain Gintoli returning, we'll see Danny Kent returning too, although he'll be back in Moto3 on this occasion. Um other KTM news, because they are bringing a new engine to this weekend's um, Spanish Grand Prix. Because they've been running a Screamer engine, uh, as they call it. They are switching to a Big Bang for this weekend. Um, a switch that uh, Honda also made over the course of the winter. Uh, so we'll be seeing whether KTM can close in on the rest of the field this weekend at Jerez. Don't think we're going to be seeing them at the very, very front of the grid, Dre. I think that's going to be reserved for Honda and Yamaha. Um, and the question is, will we finally get the showdown between Maverick and Mark that we've all been waiting for? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint everybody on, on, on the internet here, but like, I, I, I watched the Thursday press conference earlier today. I've, I've read some of the comments, and Marquez is already thinking about podiums. He's not thinking about race wins. And um, we saw it last year, just how in insanely good the Yamahas were, especially Valentino Rossi, mm. that, we, that won the race by half a dozen seconds, and we were all watching in shock, like, what the hell is going on here? Um, basically, and yeah, if, if Rossi completely dominated, I'm not sure if that will happen again this year, but um, this is certainly a Yamaha circuit, um, at least from where I'm sitting, and I expect Maverick to win fairly comfortably. Um, he is the favourite for the bookies, ironically, to win this Grand Prix at about 11-8 to 8 right now. Um, Marquez a close second, but I, I think they're giving Marquez a bit too much credit. I think Marquez would, would happily come out of here with a podium finish mm. as opposed to a race win. Yeah, we're getting into that stage of the season, aren't we? Kind of like last year where Marquez is going to have to be very, very canny about this and basically maximise his points because we've got a succession of races coming up. Starting this weekend, Spanish Grand Prix at Le Mans. Uh, Scottish Grand Prix at Jerez, then Le Mans next up, uh, the French Grand Prix. Following that, we have Mugello, then Catalonia, um, then Assen. All rounds which very much favour the Yamaha. It's not until we get to the beginning of July and the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring where we have our next Honda circuit. So Marquez is going to have to really try and limit the damage in this next half a dozen rounds. Yeah, welcome to beat em down city if you're a Honda rider right now, because the next two months is not going to be fun. Um, yeah, as you say, all pretty much Yamaha circuits and between now and the Saxon ring. So Marquez has got to be thinking, get these podiums where I can get them. Just, just, just you know, beat your teammate. So, you know, if you can be top Honda, you know, if, you, if you're top Honda, you're probably going to be at worst third place. And, you know, let Rossi and Vinales scrap it out a little bit. See what comes up. See what you can get. But right now, as it stands, this is not the time to be thinking about race wins because it's, it's probably not going to happen. Just ride your races. Take it easy. If any opportunities come, take them. Don't get me mm. wrong. But uh, the way it stands right now, he's probably not going to be Maverick and Rossi on raw, on raw race pace at the moment. No, probably an unfair expectation. No, but I guess the other guess the question worth asking then, rather than that, is are we going to get the showdown between Maverick and Valentino that we've been waiting to see? We haven't seen one yet for a couple of reasons. One, that Valentino's not really had the pace of Maverick, and two, because Maverick fell off at the South Americas when it looked like happening. Um, and I guess it, the question is, will it all come down, Dre, to Gibbonau Corner? Uh, at the end of the lap. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Um, 
bad memories. A race that's been made available to watch on YouTube, I believe, today. Of, of course it has. Like, <laughs> I, I, I know the MotoGP social media team very well. And I know exactly what they were doing on that one. Yeah, like the, the, they're very un, they're very canny, those guys in that department. Um, you know who you are. Um, but uh, yes, um, it could very well come down to that. And if you call it Jim and Al again, I will fight this <laughs> Um, but, yeah, it's actually Lorenzo corner these days, isn't it? Technically, it's Lorenzo corner, and you know Lorenzo had the had the rough side of that stick too, ironically. Yeah, from but, um, it could very well come down to the final corner of poor judgment, as I like to call it. Um, and it, it 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 could be fun. It could. Like, we'll, we'll, I bet you we'll see one in Moto Three for sure. We yeah. saw it last year. I think it was with Quattararo tried the mother of all dive bombs, and that one blew up in his face. Actually, that was the year before, actually, 2015, because yeah. Binder had that unbelievable um, win, win from the back win. of last year. But um, if we get a close race finish, we're bound to get someone trying the last corner dive bomb at the hairpin, and I look forward to seeing someone try. <laughs> yes, uh, we will wait and see on that. Um, Jorge Lorenzo uh, celebrated his 30th birthday today. Um, That's nuts! To, yeah, amazing. Uh, it makes, makes us feel slightly younger, though, if nothing else. Um, but um, he um, he uh, came up with an interesting new line that I haven't heard before. Saying, what did he say? 30 is the new 20, he said? He did. Uh, today, that's new on me, got to say. 30-20, I can tell you right now, unequivocally, Jorge Lorenzo is full of shit. Yeah, um, it isn't. Sorry, Jorge, you just are on this one. No 20-year-old no or no 30-year-old out there is ever saying that they're the new 20. Isn't that right, Sodomy? Then you turn 30 like, in a couple of years' time? Uh, well, a few more than that. I'm 26, you cheap bastard. That's that's his, <laughs> that, that's his, that's his reaction for uh, me naming his jib in our corner. Um, but, uh, but no, Jorge Lorenzo then, 30. Um, yeah, if he says it's the new 20, when he goes to uh, Cota next season, they'll be saying, Right, they hand that beer back. She's too young, mate. Um, but it, that, that's probably the only thing he'll have to celebrate this weekend, Dre, because if there was one circuit that's not made for a Ducati, it's Jerez. It is not. It is absolutely not. And um, again, I go back to my man David Emmett to defer on, on situations like this, and he said it himself on Twitter a couple of days ago that uh, Ducati are awful here. It is their worst track on the calendar by miles. The last time Ducati finished within 26 seconds of the win was 2010. That's how bad Ducati are. Stony years. They 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 hate Haref with a burning passion of a thousand suns. So um, yeah, Lorenzo is not is probably not going to perform all that well here. Um, your your best bet of waiting to see where where the the bright Lorenzo spark might come might be Mugello in a month or so's time. But uh, for now, again, this this is peak struggle season for Ducati right now because the next few rounds on the calendar of, of uh, if they're not kind to Honda, they're very unkind to Ducati. <laughs> yeah, all Ducati will have going for them, particularly at Mugello, is that long straight and hoping that, hoping that it pays them back because they haven't got a lot of else going for them in the races to come. Um, all of that does point to Yamaha, as we mentioned, and the winner, if it is Yamaha rider, will become, um, it'll go down in history because he'll take Yamaha's 500th Grand Prix victory. Um, which they're aiming for this weekend. The other milestone this weekend, which they're celebrating Dawn today, this weekend will mark the 3,000th Motorcycle Grand Prix uh, across all classes, which is one hell of a milestone. Uh, congratulations to everyone who has made MotoGP and all three classes what it is today. It is an astonishing setup. Um, so how do you see it going then? It's got something as well, just a quick mention as well. They had um, Agostini, Nieto and Rossi holding up the banner for 3,000. And I saw it on Instagram. Those three men alone contribute for 11% 
of all of those 3,000 race victories. So over <laughs> 300 and nearly 330 Grand Prix victories between them. And I've not even mentioned the fact that Jorge Lorenzo and Mark Marquez were also there, who both are in the 50-win club themselves. Yeah. So Across all the people uh, across all the people that were on that stage, which included Dani Pedrosa, Cal Crutchlow, uh, Angel Nieto, um, the riders on stage combined more than 500 race victories in Grand Prix. Amazing. Um, which is incredible. Um, it's an incredible history uh, that this sport has had. Um, and, yeah, we, we enjoyed going through it all on our 250 show uh, last year. Um, all in all, then, Dre, it points to a Yamaha victory this weekend. In fact, there's no point in me asking you um, who you think is going to win this race between Maverick and Valentino because you put your money where your mouth is for this one. Yes, I, I did a treble on Twitter regarding this yes, um, earlier today. I did a treble of Maverick Vinales, who's 11-8 to 8 to win the MotoGP. Frankie Morbidelli, who's 8-13 to 13 to take the Moto2 victory and make it four in a row. And I threw, I threw an F11 in there. I threw Lewis Hamilton to win the Spanish Grand Prix of Catalonia next weekend as well. Um, it pays out just under just under 17 to 2 so I'll, I'll, I'll look I'll, I'll put my money where my mouth is on this one like if, if I report to you from bike life from somewhere in Argentina on holiday in a couple of weeks <laughs> you know what's happened um, but um, yes I put my money where my mouth is on this one I think it'll be Maverick Vinales to pick up where he left off um, a couple of rounds ago and to take another victory but uh, we'll have to wait and see how that goes that's all to come this weekend we'll be back next week with episode 11 of bike life to review what Whatever does happen at Jerez this weekend across all three classes, MotoGP, Moto2, and Moto3. Um, all different places then you can find us between now and then. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are motorsport underscore 101. We're on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.net. And we are on Patreon if you want to back us financially and get these shows earlier than everybody else. Patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. 101. Um, next week, we'll return as a safe for episode 11 and for episode 85 of Motorsport 101. Um, and, and Dre is dreading this part because I'm going to have to throw over to him and say, what we're going to be talking about, Dre? Because there ain't a lot on. Um, uh, um, Call the mailbag. <laughs> uh, extra large mailbag. <laughs> um, really, we haven't got much this week. We'll probably be previewing stuff we're talking probably a lot about Fernando Alonso's yes. um, passing rookie of the orientation for the Indy 500. How many uh, watched that? Yeah, apparently over 250,000 people across all social media watched Fernando Alonso. One one car go around the oval a lot at Indianapolis, which I have to say, truly a needle move that man, Fernando Alonso, no matter which way you slice it. So very <laughs> impressive indeed. And we'll probably be previewing the Formula E round at Monaco next weekend, I believe. We'll be, we'll be pouring Casey Fairman for that one as well. So I'm looking forward to that. She's a fan favourite. King loves her. But uh, <laughs> um, so looking forward to some of that as well. And yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll try and make a show of next to nothing. <laughs> yeah. I was say, we managed it last week. So um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're pretty good at that around here. Uh, that's all to come next week. Motorsport 101, episode 85, in all probability next Wednesday. Uh, Bite Live in all probability next Wednesday. Friday, so we look forward to your company then. Until then, from Dre and from myself, it's goodbye, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>